Charles Bronson. You've seen him like this, like this, and like this. But you've never seen Bronson like this, like this, or like this. Now, Charles Bronson. Oh, me. And Jill Ireland. Wowie yourself. In From Noon Till Three. It's a love story, too good to be true. I hope that wasn't meant to be an insult. Charles Bronson is Graham Dorsey, the outlaw. Your name is now spoken in the same breath as Jesse James. He saw what he wanted. The first law of chivalry is to rescue ladies in distress. And took it. <laughs> Jill Ireland is Amanda Starbuck, the lady. I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. Ooh. She knew what he needed. If you're so depraved, you'd inflict your desires on an unwilling body. Then proceed. And gave it. The whole world will remember the love they shared from noon till three. Love isn't something you measure that way. It's a romance. I think I'm in love with you. Me too. It's a western. Fill your hand, mister. I already did. It's a comedy. <laughs> it's a tragedy. I will let nothing spoil our legend. Nothing. It's full of suspense. And surprises. You don't want me to disrobe. It's an unusual movie starring an unusual Bronson. From noon till three. Everybody, welcome to uh, another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. This is a very special episode, an unconventional episode. Uh, across the internet from me is Mr. Jim Healy. Hi, Jim. Hello, hello. You faithful listeners will be familiar with Jim, who's been on this show, I don't know, three or four times at least. Yeah, I think so. With Mike twice and with uh, Scott and... My brother Pat once. No, I, well, you know, okay, so I'm sorry, I don't even think I said my name. It's Ben Reiser. It's your old pal, Ben Reiser. Uh, if you were listening to the last episode that we released, that was uh, about the Fury. Um, uh, we mentioned uh, almost in passing that Scott Lucas, who's my co host, is going on tour with his band Local H starting next week uh, at the time that we're recording this. And so he, uh, you know he can't do everything, man. He's gonna take a little break from uh, from seventy movies. Uh, uh, you may also be aware that Scott and I started doing another podcast, which is we've been doing on a weekly basis uh, called Lifers, which is a more of a music based podcast where Scott interviews um, luminaries and others in the music industry, uh, people who've spent their life making music or being part of that. And actually not just music, because we had Michael Shannon on as a guest. But anyway, people that Scott has met and become friends with over the years who have interesting stories to tell about uh, about everything, but about, I guess, the entertainment industry, uh, with music being the main 
Flashpoint. Anyway, so we're going to try to keep doing those with Scott. He took his microphone on the road with him. Um, but it seemed like a little too much to to ask him to continue on with this while he's on tour. Because he's playing almost every night. So we'll see how the lifers thing goes. But in any case, uh, Jim Healy, who is, of course, uh, at one point was named the ombudsman of the 70 movies we saw in the 70s. Yeah, or Nudge. <laughs> Nudge. Um uh, graciously agreed to step in in the interim, um, and uh, hopefully we'll get Pat on here as well, and we'll do we'll have some other special guests. But today's episode uh, is all about uh, from noon till three, the Frank Gilroy movie from nineteen seventy six. Yeah, it came out in seventy six, right? I think. Uh, well, you know. That's an interesting thing that you say. Uh, I've got the review from the New York Times that was from January 29th, 1977. Okay. Yeah, I, I had some some U.S. locations open in August of 76. Wow. It was, fil- it was filmed in 75, so obviously it was, it was not a movie that UA had any sort of great <laughs> faith in. I mean, they let it kind of spill out. Over a bunch of markets and, you know, I mean, which is a lot of movies we're still doing at this time. This is. Right. But is a six month spread typical for like, let's say it opened Chicago in August. Could it really be until January that it didn't hit New York? Not unusual. Not not terribly unusual. And this was going on even until through the mid, maybe not mid, but well, definitely the mid 80s when it came to you know, independent and, you know, smaller company movies and not studio movies. I remember um, Super Fuzz playing in Chicago in 1981. And then we moved to New Jersey and it opened there almost six months later. And I was trying to warn everybody about it, but everyone (laughs) seemed to be excited about it nonetheless. Well, the the meat of this episode is actually... A unique thing for us here at 70 Movies. It is actually an episode of Cinema Talk, uh, which is the podcast that came before 70 Movies we saw in the 70s and Lifers. It's the podcast that Jim and I do for our our jobs, our careers, our our bread and butter, which is the UW Cinematech uh, and the Wisconsin Film Festival over at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we started this one, uh, we started Cinema Talk pre-pandemic, Although it sort yep. of kicked into overdrive once the pandemic started, and it was uh, it became a really helpful way for us to stay in touch with our our audience and to bring guests that we would normally try to bring on campus to present their films and to do Q and A, talk back things after films uh, to get them to get them in front of our audience in some way, um, and actually. You know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of preferable to uh, it's a lot less hassle, as it turned out, than 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 booking people's flights or hotels or, you know, I mean, it's fun. It's great to spend a weekend with, uh, you know, Alexander Payne or somebody. But yeah, but you can make these come together pretty fast and, you know, you yeah. don't have to there isn't there isn't a lot of uh, travel planning and uh, back and forth and with scheduling and making sure the venue's available. It's nice to be able to just grab someone for an hour, talk to them, and then with your uh, lightning-fast editing and engineering skills, they get up for people to listen to very quickly. 
Yeah. So, anyway, uh, we've returned to in-person screenings this summer at Cinematheque. We've been showing three films a week for uh, the whole month of July and into this first week of August. Um, And uh, last week we showed the movie I already mentioned, From Noon Till Three. And um, I don't know, about a week before we showed it, uh, Jim sat down on the internet and talked to Dan Gilroy, who is Frank Gilroy's son. And Dan Gilroy, uh, you may know as a filmmaker in his own right. Uh, Rattle off some of his credits. Nightcrawler uh, Mm -hmm. was his first film as writer-director, and he got an Oscar nomination for his screenplay for that. And he's done two more feature-length films since then. Roman J. Israel Esquire with Denzel Washington, an Oscar-nominated title role. And then he did a film for Netflix the year after that called Velvet Buzzsaw, which was a satire of the art world. Uh, but he, you know, he's a uh, Dan's a very busy screenwriter. Before that, I mean, I'm sure he's written countless projects that never went to the screen. But he's got several credits uh, for screenplays going back to 1992, uh, the movie Free Jack with. Uh, Mick Jagger and Emilio Estevez and, uh, most importantly, Rene Russo, who became Mrs. Dan Gilroy after that. But he's, you know, uh, had his name on a number of scripts. Um, I guess some of the more relatively recent ones would be Two for the Money with Al Pacino and Matthew McConaughey. And uh, with his brother, Tony, who made uh, Michael Clayton... They co-wrote *The Born Legacy*, the, uh, the I guess the fourth film in the *Born* series, and the first one without Matt Damon, um, starring Jeremy Renner. Uh, so you know, busy screenwriter, and they have another brother named John, who's a quite an accomplished editor. He's edited both Tony and, and Dan's films, but also things like *Rogue One*. Um, and a number of other big, big budget studio films, and and some lower budget indie films too. Yes, so uh, a fascinating guy with a fascinating history in uh, in the business, in the family business. <laughs> yeah, and he was, and Dan was very eager to talk about from noon till three. He let you know he, like me, he likes the film a lot and uh, was around f- for the making of it and. Um, so he, you know, he had a lot to, uh, a lot of thoughtful things to say about it, and a lot of factual things to say about it, which was which was very helpful. Do we want to run down what the movie's about? Because uh, we kind of don't do that in the podcast. We just yeah, kind of. I was oh well. Here's something that I was trying to figure out whether we should do now or or after the interview, which is I was gonna. One of the things that Dan talks about in the interview is that the film got decidedly mixed reviews, which he thinks his dad was probably a little bit disappointed in, as as anyone would be, I guess, if you're not getting rave reviews about the thing you've been working on. Um, but I, uh, in researching what Jim and I are going to do, which is one of those, what else was playing the week that uh, From Noon Till Three opened? And this is, this I researched the New York opening again on January 28th. It was reviewed in the New York Times 
on January 29th, Saturday, by Vincent Camby. And I know that I, we, I tend to read these Vincent Camby reviews where he doesn't seem to have <laughs> got, gotten, a, gotten a great take on movies, um, uh, in my opinion. Anyway. But here's one where, um, now it's interesting because this, to me, is basically a rave review. And so and it also has a pretty good description of the film. So I thought maybe, maybe we should, maybe, we'll, maybe I'll read this now and we can talk a little bit about it as I read it. Okay. We can we can argue with Vincent Camby or agree with him or whatever, um, and then we'll then we'll play the Dan interview and then we'll come back and do what else was great. Uh, but 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 it occurred to me based on what you just said that uh, interestingly, if the movie opened some places in August and got whatever reviews it got, you know that's the impression. You know that's that was the sort of that fueled the rest of the release or or didn't fuel the rest of the release. You know. And, and and might have shaped Frank's ideas about whether the film was a critical success or not. So it's interesting that, you know, six months after it opened, here comes Vincent Camby with a rave review, but it might have been sort of too little too late. Yeah, at least, you know, I don't know how it did in the New York, New Jersey market. but Well, and here's the other thing that I wanted to say when we were talking about this is that it opened in, as as far as I can tell, it opened... I don't think that can be weighted. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I haven't checked to see, I haven't gone back to see how long it had been playing in New York. I'm assuming it opened the, it, it, I'm looking yeah, at right. an ad, I'm looking at an ad for it in the Friday paper and it says starts today. Um, that was the day before Canby reviewed it. But interestingly enough, and you can tell me if this is more common than I realized. It opened as a double feature. It opened with, uh, uh, backed with, I guess that's what they'd say on a 45, but uh, Richard Harris and the Return of a Man Called Horse. Was, oh, that's interesting. Not another it, Bronson film. No. And so I'm curious as to how often that would happen, that a movie would make its debut in a market already already attached to an, a second film. Um. Yeah, I think that happened more often than we realize. Hmm. I think uh, I, I read that um, Sam Peckinpah's Ride the High Country, which is my favorite Western, was was re- released mainly uh, on a double bill. Hmm. I don't know. I think with another Western, but uh, most people, that's how they, they first saw it. I mean, that was 14 years earlier. But I just looked up Roger Ebert's review, and he... You know, I guess you call his review mixed. It's it's he has a lot of positive things to say about it. But he gave it two and a half stars, hmm. and his review was in the Chicago Sun Times on October twentieth, nineteen seventy six. Oh, interesting. So, so like be three months to look before up, New York. Yeah, yeah. and it would be interesting to look up the newspapers then to see if it was you know, I mean, I'm sure it was doubled up at drive-ins, but you know, it was probably in theaters as a single, as a single feature. And you know what? Now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure Pauline Kale reviewed it too. Oh, um, and I need to look it up again. I think it's in. Um, not I lost it at the movies, but there's a one of one of her '70s compilations. It's it's the same one that has Smile in it and mm. a bunch of films. I have that in my office. I now I need to look it up again because, you know, it could you know she she didn't always review films before they opened, and she would frequently just go to see a movie during its run. Mm-hmm. And then and then review it, and maybe Vincent Camby did the same thing, and maybe he did the same thing 
maybe he did the same thing because uh, because she had reviewed it. You know, maybe he went out and saw it himself. Oh, that could be. I mean, it does. Like I said, the ad says it starts today, but that could easily be like this double feature starts today. And it's a you know, it opened in a that starts today ad has a pretty wide release. I mean, it's all it's not only is it in Manhattan, but it's in all the boroughs and it's in New Jersey and Suffolk County and Long Island. And okay, so so in other words, it might have opened it might have opened months earlier and had a quiet thing where it didn't get reviewed. And it just they're bringing it out again and can be used it as an occasion to write a review and and you say he really liked it right yeah well um, you're about to hear what he had to say about it but uh, but i will say that doesn't look like he's got a sentence which he sometimes has which is like blah 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 which opened yesterday at the blah 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 he doesn't talk about it opening so that's that maybe that's tipping the scales in what you just said that that he just randomly reviewed it at some point Uh, or reviewed it on the occasion of its sort of wider release like right. maybe it was playing in Manhattan for a month or two, and then it oh, then it opened wide on the East Coast. Right, and Return of a Man from a Man Called Horse was one of those also critical darlings, or at least I know Pauline Kael raved about it. Really? Yeah. Hmm. She was a big Irvin Kirshner fan. She raved about Isalora Mars too. Wow, that's amazing to me. Again, just coming off of last week talking about the Fury. And comparing it to Eyes of Laura Mars, that somebody right. would, somebody would l- love the Fury and also somehow love Eyes of Laura Mars. Yeah, Weird. yeah. Well, that's Pauline Kale for you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, from noon till three, as as Graham Dorsey, Charles Bronson, and his associates ride single file into the small western town, intent on robbing the bank on the far end of Main Street, they are made uneasy by the absence of people. There's not a person or an animal in sight. The place seems to be the Marie Celeste of frontier villages, a vessel abandoned by its crew and passengers for no particular reason. Once in the bank, their worries are forgotten as they stuff their bags, pockets, and shirts with money. On the way out, however, the gang is ambushed. One by one, the bandits are picked off by the furious citizens until Graham Dorsey wakes up screaming. He's been having a nightmare. Uh, Okay, so that's kind of a spoiler, I suppose, because that first... Five minutes, you don't know that it's a dream. Um, but it, it informs the decisions he makes right away. Absolutely. And, 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 right. and, and what goes on in the rest of the movie. Right. Uh, and so I will say, again, not that I ever sort of put spoiler warnings on on our 70 Movies podcasts, but the interview that you do with Dan does have lots of spoilers. And I will yeah. say that if you haven't seen From Noon Till 3, maybe, maybe you should, because I think it's a really good movie, but also... It is definitely a movie where the less you know about it, the better. Yeah, and I don't know why you'd want to be listening to this without having seen the movie. Right. I mean, well, they just I, love the sound of our voices, I think, is what yeah. normally happens. <laughs> um, okay, Frank D. Gilroy's witty, discreetly composed From Noon Till Three, which opened yesterday. Oh, no, he did say this. Which opened yesterday at the Mark II and other theaters, is about the fateful events that take place on the day after Graham Dorsey's Nightmare. To get out of the long-planned holdup he has been dreading, he arranges to miss it by having to hide out in the prairie gothic mansion of a beautiful, rich, quite loony widow, Amanda Starbuck, whom he seduces more or less to pass the time, only to unlock forces far more devastating than those of any ordinary posse. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that he calls her loony. Well, that's oh, that's almost a spoiler in itself, too, right? Because it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really her final moments that in the in the movie that 
make it clear that she's a loony. I mean, or at least someone who's uh, unbalanced and not not quite not quite uh, seeing, yeah. seeing the world like everybody else. I guess. Well. Or that, the, that I mean, I never, I don't, if anyone asked me to describe her, I don't know I would have used that word. But it's interesting to think of the events that transpire and the myth that they create envelops them. And so if she's a loony, he winds up where he winds up at the end of the movie. He's also, quote unquote, a loony. He's literally yes. in an asylum. So, right. So it could, you know, it could be that it's really that this thing you know, turns them both into some form of a Yeah. Loon. She's, she's a lot more, um, he's a lot more passive in the whole thing. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. he kind of has to be, he's yeah. spending, spending time in jail and, and she's, meanwhile, she's, she's creating this whole thing and, and living by this, living by this code, this myth that she's invented. Yeah. And, um, he is, uh, in some respects of a victim of her uh storytelling um although he you know cr- he creates stories about himself to get himself in the situation to begin with you know he brags about himself as an outlaw he you know makes up this whole story about his his impotence yeah uh, you know what an erection is don't you <laughs> <laughs> um it seems to me like this movie for no other reason than the amount of sort of sexual innuendo um that takes place and that and the dialogue that's sexually based and sort of you know the way he finally proves to her that he's who he says he is later on in the movie that feels like today that would this would be i i would i think I don't, maybe I'm wrong. An R-rated movie? Maybe they would. Maybe it would be PG-13. Just oh, feels easily. like it's a, it's adult easily. subject matter, and, and and but in the same way that a mo- another movie from around this time period, Young Frankenstein, is almost nothing but the same sort of mildly body sort of sexual innuendo jokes, you know. Yeah. And and a, another PG-rated film that I that I think today would be R. And interestingly, that it. That 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 Blazing Saddles was hit with the R, but um, but that Young Frankenstein managed to avoid that fate. Yeah, well, they you know they both deal with um, rape or you know or uh, uh, what you know what what seems to be forced, uh, you know, a man forcing himself on a on yeah. a woman. You know, in Young Frankenstein, it's you know it's the monster, and and in, in this film, it's Bronson, and both of the women are you know won over by their assaulters, right? And and specifically about in some way about the, the their their instrument, their 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 penises. I mean, they're right. both like they both got that going for them. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm now imagining what I think would be a pretty fun movie if, if, um, if they had cast Bronson as the monster in Young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see that after seeing this movie. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, so Canby goes on from noon till three 
is neither a conventionally comic western nor a conventional comedy, and it certainly isn't a conventional Bronson film. More than anything else, I suppose, it is an ebulliently cheerful satire of contemporary myth-making and celebrity, cast as a fable of the Old West. Yeah, I think that gets it. I mean, yeah. it, it's but just... For an, me, I'm like, ooh, Candy, look at you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it... I mean, that that's that's pretty much its its charm today is it's just it's such a surprising film in so many ways you know just be you know just starting with bronson i mean that it's a comedy at all um and i you know and i should i was thinking about this a little bit and it has a little bit of precedent in a film he did uh in 75 or that was released in 75 called breakout have you seen that one no that's where uh, Jill Ireland's married to Robert Duvall, and Robert Duvall winds up in a really scary and violent Mexican prison. And Bronson has is a is a pilot who has to fly, um, you know, a, 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 what I think is a twin prop plane over the border and 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 break Duvall out of the prison quickly, and then fly him back. And it's it's. It's not a it's not a it's not a movie you describe as a comedy, but Bronson is very comic and all. He's kind of a he's kind of a loser in that one, um, you know, kind of a you know a, a guy who is trying to build himself up with myths, but he's you know he's he's a bit of a screw up and and uh, Jill Ireland hires him, you know, maybe against her her better uh, instincts and and. Um, you know, he ends up pulling it off, but it's, it's, he's, he's kind of similar to Graham Dorsey. He's, you know, he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a blowhard and, and he, and he plays things a lot, you know, with a much lighter touch than he does say Mr. Majestic or Death Wish or, or even Breakheart Pass, which is the film that came in between, uh, and has the same director as Breakout, Tom Grise. Huh. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say that, you know, watching the I watched this film for the first time, I guess, last year. And I can't remember yeah. what, what brought me to it, but I think hmm. it must have been some other 70s thing we were doing or talking about. Or, I came I remember. to it very late, too. I mean, just a couple of years ago, I saw it for the first time. Yeah, and I was really struck by it then. And then watching it again on a beautiful 35 millimeter print last week at our at our theater... Um, it didn't have quite the same effect on me, mostly because I sort of knew what was coming. Um, but it also allowed me to sort of think about why the film feels as unique and strange and surprising as it does, other than the actual sort of plot beats and storyline, which are, you know, unconventional and, 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 and as I think as Dan says in your interview, like you never know what's going to happen next in this movie right and anytime you try to guess you're you're probably wrong and yeah, i and definitely felt that way the first yeah. time i saw it a few other people we've talked to who were at the screenings felt the same way too yeah but in looking at it a second time and trying to figure out what is it, what are the elements that make it so unique and sort of bizarre in a way i started thinking about about Bronson and his performance and how out of character it is for him and how I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether he pulls this part off the way it was written. And when I hear that Jack Nicholson was who Frank Gilroy was really looking for, that makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. 
especially when he licks the chicken grease off of Joe Ireland's <laughs> fingers. That is a Nicholson moment, if there ever was one, right? Yeah, but there's a slyness and a cunning to this character and a sort yeah. of like a a crafty mind that I don't think we normally see Bronson. I mean, we see him do that, but in a much more sort of primitive way, like a, like He-Man, like taciturn and just sort of like relentless, like I'm a killing machine or I'm, you know, I've got my... Yeah. There isn't a lot of like sort of like cunning to to most of Bronson's ca- I mean yeah no I know what you within, mean yeah and so him trying to do all that stuff it's it's strange it's it's a strange performance that I think is a really great fascinating performance in its own way I don't know how much of it is like what we see versus what Bronson's trying to do or what Gilroy was trying to put on the page you know when he pulls off the kind of typical Bronson coolness is in the early early scenes of the film not the not when he's waking up from a dream that's when you realize it's you know what a vulnerable com- yeah. c- comparably vulnerable character he is compared to who he usually plays but it's it's the scene shortly after that when the when they get to Jill Ireland's house and he faces off with the gang and faces their challenges about the the horse kicking in the barn or cow he says and uh you know that's that's good and then he and then he you know once he's alone in the house with Ireland, you see that vulnerability again um, coming out, e- coming out even more. And, and what's interesting about the book and a difference between the book and the movie that I didn't talk about with with uh, Dan Gilroy is that you the book as written, the first half is is the story of what happens from noon till three, as told by in the voice of Amanda, who's writing a letter to a publication. Um, and it's and it's that publication, uh, and not necessarily a book. I don't think that that gets you know that gets the myth going and 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 started. Hmm. And and you so you only see Graham through Amanda's eyes in the first half, and it's you know and it's be it's it's a lot of BS, and she's she's uh, you know portrays him as this kind of stoic guys and you don't you don't see any of the you know finger licking uh, nonsense and you don't see any of graham's kind of uh goofier side as you do as you do in the movie and then the second half of the book is graham's deathbed uh a letter that was that was dictated from by graham from his deathbed talking about what, what really happened well, that's interesting. That's a huge yeah. change from from the structure of the of the film. Yeah. Um, wow. But but the, but the film manages to capture the the kind of uh, I, I say he said she said because I'm actually just been reading Ken Quapis's book, which actually does that. You know, where you get the same story told from the from the male and female perspectives and different with different directors too. Right. Um, but I think the movie manages to to nevertheless convey a sense of of um, surprise and uh, you know and two sides of the coin you know with with Bronson's character both in in, in his performance and in the way the kind of second half of the film plays out. I mean, you can you can see 
you know, and, and, and the first half, and there are certain gestures he does in the first half, which, you know, obviously are things that Jill Ireland took. Yeah. There's, but I'm thinking among other things of the way of the thing that he pitches to her as a way to get her into bed, which is that he's impotent and can't perform. Right. That if you're watching Nicholson do that scene, like you understand that character, you get yeah. the whole thing and you, but you watch Bronson do that. And I, and I think, and I think this helps the film is that, you know, you know, you're not quite sure what to make of this because it's such a non Bronson thing to do thing to say, uh, you know, like he seems like the guy who just go ahead and rape her and isn't going to like come right. up with, you know, that, and that's just Bronson. That's what Bronson brings to this movie. But the fact that that's not what's going on and that he's this total other kind of character, which we've never really seen him play before. And we're not sure if he knows how to play, but we're not really thinking that when we're watching the movie, we're just like, Oh, I don't know what to think. I don't know. You, you really don't know what to think about either one of these people for, for most of, if not all of the movie. Right. Yeah. And there are still lots of questions even when it's over, but um, yeah, that yeah, that's. I think it's it's comes off in both their performances, which is surprising for both these actors. I mean, you you might say they were never better, or at least you might say they were never more kind of compelling and interesting right. to watch. More interesting, right? Never more interesting. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Let me let me let me get through this review. Okay. Uh, uh, not all of it is equal. Ex- equally successful and it takes its time making certain points which being made or made again yet its intelligence and its narrative shape are immensely satisfying graham dorsey's seduction of the rich widow turns out to be as much of a nightmare trap as the one he dreamed of just before the bank job when all of his associates are caught during the holdup and hanged and when he also is thought to have been executed the romantically liberated widow tells her story to the world via book and song She and her supposedly dead lover, who lived a lifetime of love between noon and three, become objects of national adoration. The frontier town is turned into a hustling tourist center, the mansion a shrine, and Amanda herself into the keeper of the flame. Under such circumstances, it's no surprise that she greets Graham Dorsey's eventual return with something less than enthusiasm. A large part of the world refuses to allow the destruction of the legend. Does anyone want to believe that John Dillinger is alive and well and selling Pontiacs in Scranton? Mr. Gilroy, who not only directed the film, but also wrote the screenplay based on his own novel, has a nice, light way with irony that prevents from noon till three from tripping over its rather large intentions. He has also obtained two remarkably attractive, absolutely straight performances from Mr. Bronson, who is funny without ever lunging at a laugh, as Burt Reynolds often does under similar circumstances, and from Miss Ireland, whose cool, somewhat steely beauty are perfectly suited to the widow who manages almost immediately to transform a real-life experience into a mass-media material with plenty of spin-offs. Mr. Gilroy, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of The Subject Was Roses and a director of talent and taste, Desperate Characters, has made a film of unusual beauty with the help of Lucian Ballard, the cameraman, and Robert Clapworthy, the production designer. It was especially irritating then that when I saw the film at the first showing at the Mark II yesterday, the print was in such poor shape, mm. it looked as if a cat had been scratching its claws on it. <laughs> a pr- a Further, print that had played in Chicago four months <laughs> earlier, no yeah, doubt. Yeah. Further, it seemed to be out of focus about half the time, uh. while the music of Led Zeppelin in the song Remains the Same in the adjoining <laughs> theater was audible throughout. <laughs> People who pay admission should not have to put up with such sloppiness. Well, there you go. 
Which reminds me that uh, Jimmy Page did the scores for Death Wish 2 and 3. Mm. Yeah, maybe so Bronson, kind of like a, maybe Bronson like a, was in the theater hearing Led Zeppelin. And I was like, hey. <laughs> or he read that review guy. and said, hey, <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. I mean, I think if if I'm uh, if I'm Frank Gilroy and I get that review on opening day, I'm like right on. I'm in. I'm in in New York. Big hit. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds good. I'll have to look for that Pauline Kael review. But I know I read it. I'm pretty sure I read it once, and that and that she liked it too. But I have to go back. Very, I think very fair and and appreciative of Frank Gilroy and and his. You know and what he does in this film. You know he's not he's not Brian De Palma, right? He's not. He's got he's got pros like Elmer Bernstein and Lucian Ballard, uh, but he's not. He's not trying to show off visually at any point. He's telling the forward story fairly straightforwardly and letting the the surprises just come out of the the story and and the performances. Yeah, and you know, it, it, we keep somehow Blazing Saddles keeps coming up in this conversation, which I guess makes sense, I guess in a way. But I mean, you know, it has that sort of Hollywood sort of seventies, not quite real, not a real western, but almost like a you know, it's yeah, got I, that, the, that uh, almost ex- almost yeah, the lighting uh, uh, is a little bit flat and bright, and 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 the sets almost look like pastiches of pastiches kind of thing like there's at some point not necessarily the interior of the house but like the 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 um the the dentist wagon and the you know and then some of the other uh saloons and things like that that show up in the second half of the film um there it's a little it's not a lot of not a lot of thought put into you know the realism of the old west it's you know it might very well have been you know, pieces borrowed from TV westerns that were just going off. There wasn't Gunsmoke on the air until like 75 or 76, I think, even that late. Yeah. 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 Manza was on almost to the early 70s. And so, yeah, yeah it's got, it's, it has a little bit of that look to it. As compared to Breakheart Pass, which I think is a really gorgeous uh, western with unusual locations and um and i haven't seen the white buffalo for a long time but i know that that even though i'm not crazy about that film i know it 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 had a kind of hallucinatory uh visual style to it um you know unlike a lot of you know tv westerns of the time it it looked very different those are the Hmm. those are the two westerns that uh that uh bookend um from from noon till three, and I think White Buffalo was his last traditional western. Right, there's a few films where he kind of contemporary stories that where he's kind of a bit of a cowboy, like Borderline and right things like that. But it but it's it's the last White Buffalo is the last period western he's in, and that that comes out not probably not too long after that Vincent Camby review in in the New York Times. Hmm. The same year, 1977. I'm not sure when the Times would have reviewed it, but um, yeah, you know what I watch? I I know I watched this movie probably within the last five years, but I need to do it again. It's the movie that I think I had the closest connection to as far as Charles Bronson movies in the '70s because I saw it more than once in a theater. It was Telephone, right? Uh, I saw it twice on TV. Um, definitely, 
official podcast of the UW Cinematheque in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Jim Healy, the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. Consistently clever and sometimes shockingly surprising, From Noon Till Three was the creation of the playwright and screenwriter Frank D. Gilroy, who began his career in the 1950s, writing numerous episodes for live television drama shows like Playhouse 90, Omnibus, The U.S. Steel Hour, Studio One, and Craft Theater and later numerous episodes of filmed Western shows, like The Rifleman, Wanted Dead or Alive, Have Gun Will Travel, and Disney's Texas John Slaughter. In the 1960s, Frank Gilroy won the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award for his play The Subject Was Roses, which was adapted into a 1968 movie directed by Ulu Grossbard. Later, Gilroy himself turned to directing feature films in the 1970s, beginning with the 1971 release Desperate Characters, starring Shirley MacLaine. After From Noon Till Three, which was released and distributed by United Artists, and which Gilroy adapted himself from his own novel, Gilroy wrote and directed three more independently financed feature films, Once in Paris from 1978, The Gig in 1985, and The Luckiest Man in the World in 1989. Gilroy died in 2015 at the age of 89, but, in addition to his own writing and directing, Gilroy's legacy to cinema should also include the work of his three sons, whose collective accomplishments are quite impressive on their own. On this episode of Cinema Talk, I discuss From Noon Till Three with Dan Gilroy, the celebrated screenwriter and director behind 2014's Nightcrawler, which earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay, 2017's Roman J. Israel Esquire, which gained Denzel Washington an Oscar nomination for Best Actor, and 2019's Netflix movie Velvet Buzzsaw, a satire of the art world. Be warned, spoilers abound in our talk on From Noon Till Three, an unpredictable movie that we recommend you see before listening to our conversation. Here now is my talk with Dan Gilroy. Dan Gilroy, welcome to Cinema Talk. It's nice to have you. Thanks for having me. It's an exciting event. The the, the reemergence of From Noon Till Three. I'm excited. And it's and it's not just our screening too. There have been uh, 
other discussions of it recently too. Um, even after we planned the screening, I know uh, Quentin Tarantino has come out uh, recently to, he, as a as a big fan. He just discovered it too recently. I did not know that. Is that really wow? When it's did true. that happen? There have been. He's been doing podcasts with his new Beverly Cinema right. uh, hosts. And they did a whole episode where they talked about Blu-rays they recently discovered, and he did a whole segment on from noon till three. And he's a big Bronson fan, but didn't didn't catch up with it like myself until you know just recently. That is so heartening to hear. I mean, I'm just an enormous Quentin Tarantino fan, and that he's that he's looking at it that way. I know it was re-released on uh, on some label that does re- bring back films that were seemingly passed over, didn't get their due. I do know that. Yeah, there was a Blu-ray uh, by Twilight Time. Right, that was what it was. Which is a right. company run by uh, a guy who passed away named Nick Redman, um, uh, who just put, put out a lot of great stuff on Blu-ray. And there's a really nice essay inside by uh, Nick's wife, Julie Kurgo, okay. uh, who talks about the uh, appreciation for the film, too. So, yeah, it is, it is. And I think it's been on Amazon Prime. And so I think people have had a chance to, uh, to catch up and see it. So were you able to watch it just recently? Uh, I know you wanted to talk about uh, some aspects of the Yeah, film. can I go sort of into how I watched it and what struck me at first? Is that a format that you... Absolutely, please. So I literally haven't watched the film in 45 years, and that's dating back pretty much probably when it came out in 75. I mean, and I was on the set every day as an extra, and my father was very inclusive with my brother, Johnny and I, because that summer was shot out this summer. So we were on the set every day. So I was intimately involved in aware of the production, but I had not seen it really since 75. And it was a really interesting experience in a lot of ways. There's so much that's unique and really ahead of its time to discuss. And I'm looking forward to do that. But I do have to start by something that hit me, and that's addressing the big scene in the film, which is when Bronson gets left behind by, you know, the gang at Jill Ireland's house. And what follows after some buildup is really essentially an armed assault on her. There's really no other way of looking at it. And it's jarring and it's, you know, disturbing in a lot of ways to watch it today because there's just no defense of it through anything resembling what you could call a contemporary lens. I think it's, there's a lot of films that are sort of encountering plot points on this level, but it has to be noted, but um, there's just a lot of twists and turns between them that follow that scene and they then formed this larger part of the narrative as I was watching it. And it started to really strike me that in the third act, it really transforms into something else entirely. And that's one of the things that, 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 that stands out watching it today. And that's what a, what a wholly original story Frank really created on so many levels. Um, it's this whimsical Western romance on the surface, and it gradually transforms and addresses in really kind of an, an absolutely unvarnished way, this powerful theme of like truth versus myth and facts versus reality. I mean, I hope I'm not stepping on where you want to go with this because I, I, I no, no, it, it's, it's watching it now. I just feel it's, it's become contemporary. I mean, in a way with regards to fake news and the spinning of truth, you know, for personal purposes. Um, I mean, you go back to the Western era and, and, and these supposedly factual books and serialized books about events in the West well, really what defined that entire era. And in, That's, in a lot of ways, it's, it's like the internet defines events today. And the movie really becomes at the end about the creation of this huge false legend. And, and then takes this radical turn about what it does to the people involved. I mean, one of them dies. I mean, it's big, major spoiler alert. I should have said it before. The other gets committed to an insane asylum. So as the film progresses, it's driven by this like, holy 
I forgot about it. This unexpected, completely nihilistic commentary of like the dangers of what altering facts can do and where they can go. And, and all the while, and this is really mind blowing to me, Frank, who's such an incredible writer, keeps the sense of playfulness and humor, which is just an incredible accomplishment. And I think Frank was really far ahead of his time on it. Yeah, that's exactly what I wrote down. Is that, and then I think it's what makes it stand out today. Is it's this generally sweet, whimsical movie that takes us totally unpredictably uh, towards what is an absurdist and tragicomic conclusion. Um, and that kind of ending was not out of place in 70s Hollywood cinema. But it certainly kind of stands out now. You know, the 70s cinema that was generally on a bummer trip after, you know, all the assassination of the 60s. And we were there. We remember it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of bummer stuff going on. Yeah. So, you know, when it came, so that, that wasn't so unusual when it came to endies, endings. Um, and also, the, the, I read the, the novel, and the, the movie doesn't end nearly as, uh, quite as grimly as the book. In the book, he, you know, Graham dies of, uh, of bullet wounds <laughs> yeah. he suffers. Yeah. From the, um, but uh, you mentioned the, the whole thing about truth and, and, and legends. And uh, when, when I was reading about the movie, I, wasn't, I was uh, su- uh, not surprised to learn that I wasn't the first person to guess that perhaps uh, there was a, a, a part of... Um, your father's writing that uh, was inspired by the ending of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, yeah. where uh, the newspaper editor says, you know, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Um, it's, it's funny, I had to look up the exact quote, and it was an article about how often that quote from The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance gets twisted around and, and screwed up by people. Um, I think there's a thematic connection between those films, and my father was very conversant with the man who shot Liberty Valance. I mean, I could, you could say my father was conversant. He grew up in you know, his era. We grew up on Westerns and war movies. He was, I'm, I'm sure he saw pretty much every Western that was probably made or, or got released at that time. And, and, and Liberty Valance was obviously one of the most iconic films that sort of started to transform the genre. And he was very aware of it. He was very, Frank was very aware of, of, I, I wouldn't, I mean, to a degree, this is social commentary. I mean, I think he was always trying to inject something to his work. It's something I think Johnny and Tony and I do in our work as well. I think that was handed down. I think it's difficult for us to imagine to do something that doesn't have some relevance. And I think, I think he found a platform and a story to, uh, to address something that, that, that at his time, but was probably contemporary as well in the seventies. There was, there was things going on the, the, the deconstruction of myths, the, the taking a part of what, what made a legend. So I think as much as I'm saying, I feel this contemporary now, I'm sure my father felt it was contemporary in his day as well for different reasons. Yeah, and there's also a lot about taking control of the myth and taking control of your image and whatever your public image is and to whatever tragic end that might come to. But uh, because we were delayed a little bit in, in our talk today, I was able to watch from start to finish The Fastest Gun Alive from 1956, oh, yeah. which is a Western based on, a, I think, a, a teleplay that he that wrote. That he wrote, right? yeah. Uh, and the, that was called The Last Notch, I guess. The, the it was TV called version. The Last Notch when it, when it was a live TV show. And it was so successful that it was bought for that time. I don't remember the exact number, but for a lot of money. And it was turned into a film with Glenn Ford. And, right. and for the audiences watching, in essence, it's about a guy who, who at the time was the fastest gun you know, slinger in the West who married and settled down and decided he was no longer going to ever shoot or kill somebody. And he tries to become uh, a store clerk 
in a sleepy town, but you know, his past life catches up. People hear about him or, or have heard seen, seen witnessed an event in which he finally revealed who he was. And I'm, I'm mangling his beautiful story here, but it, it does have to do with a guy confronting the, the myth of what he's become, trying to put it behind him. Um, and I, I, I think, I think, I think that's a stepping stone in many ways to from noon till three thematically what Frank saw you could do with the genre. Um, yeah. And it was very successful in its day. Yeah, I guess it was a hit. And, and, and I was glad I watched it to the end because there are two big twists at the end, at least of the movie. I don't know about the teleplay, but at the mo- in the end of the movie, Glenn Ford, uh, reveals that he actually isn't, isn't, uh, as good a, a gunshot as every, as everyone thinks. He's actually living the legend of his father, of his own father. And then at the, and also at the very end, after he has the showdown with Broderick Crawford, who's the one challenging people the whole movie, he, he fakes his own death. And and you see, you see the tombstone and there's the legend again. Yes. You see the legend of the gunslinger. So it's really thematically and almost narratively, you're starting to see parallels between the two films. It's true. Definitely for sure. Well, let's go back to um, you being on the set of the film. You are, uh, can we, can we actually see you in the, in the finished? Yeah. Film? There's a scene with my brother, Johnny and I were extras and I, I, it comes when there's a stagecoach coming into town and, and it's going past a large crowd of people. And somewhere in that crowd, I'm there. And my brother, John is there is mixed up in the crowd. So I think that's, that, that's okay. as far as much as you're going to see it. And I remember my brother, Johnny and I made a mistake because we'd never been extras before. And I was thinking, like an actor, which I was not at 15 years old. Oh, the stagecoach is coming to town. I'm going to look at the stagecoach when it comes by. And I remember after the take, my father coming up and go, you're the only two who looked at the camera. He goes, you don't look at the camera. And I was going, but, but dad, like stagecoach is only coming to town once in a while. I would turn and look at the, I'm arguing with him about why I would look. He's going, no, you don't look at the camera. You never look at the stagecoach. So I remember that incident. A little chagrined, actually. <clears throat> But you got to watch the, the rest of the filming, too. Uh, it was a really incredibly special experience. It was 1974. My father started it. It was like perfect. Right when school let out in June, uh, he brought us all out. We were, had a house up in Malibu and every day he'd go to work. My brother, John, and I would go in the car with him. It was shot entirely, not entirely because the house was built out in Thousand Oaks, but everything else was shot on the Warner's lot in 74. And I'm 15 years old. My brother's 15 years old. Bronson's kids are there. They're like 14 and 15. And we just had complete run of the entire Warner's back lot every day. So that's back when Warner's had a back lot. The Shangri-La set from like 1939 movie was there where they were shooting Kung Fu. Entire Western streets, New York City streets. I mean, and we had, there was nobody stopping you. There was nowhere you couldn't go. (laughs) And so it was this magical, amazing time eating in the commissary every day with sort of right out of uh, Blazing Saddles, the number of people that are coming in. And I mean, they might've been shooting Blazing Saddles there for all. Yeah, it's 74, right? I remember time, right? my father was friends with George Jenkins, the production designer. And I remember they were shooting all the president's men. And I remember on a couple of occasions going into the entire Washington Post set and walking around oh, right on the wow. next soundstage. So it was this incredible, phenomenal experience. But um but getting back to the movie, it was, it was watching a movie get, get made. And I'd never seen that happen before. And it was really kind of profound. I realized one, how much I enjoyed being on a set and I, I liked the process of it. And I like, I like the vibe of it. I like the creative people getting together and doing it. Um, so it was, it was a pretty special time. 
you mentioned the house, and so were the uh, was the exterior of the house and the interior of the house the same no. location? No, the exterior okay. of the house was out where. So there's there's Los Angeles, and then there's the valley out in the valley toward Chatsworth and Thousand Oaks, out toward a more arid desert. They built this incredible house. It was just a facade, but when you drive up, there was this incredible four story facade and and for at least two or three weeks we, everybody's driving out there and you're out in the middle of nowhere and i remember bronson had this thing where right away he uh he found these pieces of pipe and he would take a nail and a piece of paper and he'd wrap it up and he'd make a blowgun and he and he, he would shoot these nails like 100 yards it was like unbelievable into the wood of the house and within a couple of days everybody on the set now is making blowguns because charlie's doing it and the whole back of the set there were these like like darts, these nail darts where people just shooting everything. It finally got to the point where, where the first AD who was as tough, tough as nails, AD named Russ Saunders, who went back to playing football with like uh, John Wayne, finally screamed at people like, I don't care if Charlie's doing it. Nobody can. Anyway, these are silly little stories. But, um, but you know, the one thing I, I wanted to mention in watching the films as well is that what struck me is, is the way my father used Bronson and, and the way Bronson is really being used in this film because because taking people back who weren't there, he's the hard action guy of his time. I mean, here he is. He's, in, he's basically in the early 70s. He's coming off mechanic, death wish, hard times, break hard pass, all of which are action and suspense driven with this, his total powerful, unique physical and brooding presence. And that's what's driving him. And here he steps into out of the blue from noon till three. And I think a lot of people were shocked both by the comedy romance angle and also by what we were talking about a minute ago, this meditative study of old West myth-making, you know, Bronson's playing completely against type in this movie and watching today, I think he's doing it really effectively. He, he displays this humor and gentleness and the scenes between he and Jill are, you know, I'm biased. I think there's some of his best work, but saying that I do remember my father saying that after the shoot, when Charlie and Jill saw the finished film, Charlie reached out to my father and told him specifically how proud he was of what they'd made together and how he really thought it was really one of his more important works. And I remember when the casting was happening before the shoot, Bronson's name came up. I don't believe it was my father's first choice. I think Nicholson probably had that slot. But when Bronson then became the more viable option, my father talked about conversations he was having with Bronson, which Bronson was very much expressing this desire to branch out and really stretch into other work. And, you know, Bronson was convinced he could do more than these action films. And, and I think he was right to do so because here he is, he's pulling it off, I think really incredibly effectively. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and, and he has a, he, he has a few moments in there where he's the, he's the old tough guy, you know, when he stands down the guys in his gang and, and, uh, and then towards the end as he's, as he's kind of, you know, really falling apart and, and becoming more violent in the process. It, you know, there are, it's not, it's not something where it's completely out of his, uh, wheelhouse, but, uh, he's, you know, uh, I think Roger Ebert mentioned in his review, how, how, how much range he does show within that, you know, within what we usually expect from, from Bronson in this specific film. He makes that part of that yeah. bandwidth work. It's like, I find myself leaning into his character. He's not telling me a lot. There's, there is a sort of menace to his character. You can't tell when he's lying or not lying or when he's sincere or insincere. Right. And I think that's a really good quality to have in this film about where he's coming from. Because at the end, when you realize the legend is not anything what it was presented, you start replaying in your head going, he really was a complete ne'er-do-well. 
a brilliant ne'er-do-well who spun, who actually helped contribute, spin this legend by the lies he's telling. But I, I do find myself leaning into his performance, which I like. Yeah. And you could say the same thing about Jill Ireland too. Yeah. I think she, you know, it's, it's, it's very much a Bronson vehicle, but it's really her character and her choices that, you know, that drive the, the narrative. Perhaps they're both deluded people, but uh, Amanda's delusions and standards are, you know, really become to be dangerous and even deadly to both of them. It's a real, two, it's a real two-hander. I mean, I mean, try acting yes. against Charlie Bronson all of your own. She more than holds her own. Anytime they're on the screen, I find myself watching her easily as much as I'm watching him. She has real presence. I mean, she's, she's totally tuned into the character. She was, she was a big proponent. See, my father wanted to rehearse. And it became an issue. Charlie came to my father and said, I don't rehearse. I'm not rehearsing. I mean, it became a real, like their first big, uh, you know, flashpoint. And Jill was the one who stepped in and said, I want to rehearse with Frank. And they started to do it. And, and, and so here's Jill, you know, it really shows in her work. She's taking it very seriously, this part. And she's really doing a great job. It's very effective. And, and it's a lot of range in it as well. Yeah, it's her, I think it's her definitive yeah. performance, certainly among the films she made with Bronson. But, uh, you know, and she also gets to sing in it. Yeah. Too. Get to hear her sing yeah. at the end, too. And she's, she does quite a nice job with it. Do, how, have you thought about how these two characters, Amanda and Graham, uh, fit in among, among your father's characters? Is there, is there a type that you could say, you know, oh, they're dreamers or, or they're maybe slightly deluded people that... You know, Frank's, that, Frank's that, body of work is, it, it covers a wide swath because... Because he did what, what most of us do who are writers and then or write, become writer-directors, which is you do commercial jobs. So he was doing commercial jobs throughout the, throughout the 50s and in, in the earlier 60s. Um, and those commercial jobs were uh, Gallant Hours with Ginny Cagney. Um, uh, he's doing doctoring work on, uh, on uh, uh, Fort Zindernoff, what's I forget what it's called, the desert film. I mean, he's doing a lot of commercial stuff. That, that he's doing it for money and he's doing it to hone his craft. But then the defining moment in Frank's career was when he goes off to Broadway and does the subject of his roses and wins the Pulitzer Prize. Frank was very much an autobiographical writer when he, when he was writing about things that were serious to him. So he's writing a lot of autobiographical stuff. But then when he starts to direct in the, in the later 60s, this is before From Noon Till Three, he's doing very realistic things. He, he won a silver bear at Berlin with, uh, with desperate characters. Um, He's uh, he he, uh, he does a movie called The Gig, which is about it's about uh, musicians. So that sort of is a more realistic thing. But in 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 the canon of work of his more commercial projects, I can't say that they really fall into any specific category. He really he was yeah. really covering a lot of ground. He was doing plays. He was writing TV. He was writing movies. He's doing jobs for money. He's doing jobs for himself. So. It, he's he's crafting a career that covers a lot of bases of which this was just one facet yeah and maybe the middle ground between that realistic work and the um whimsical you know almost fantasy type element of from noon till three is something like the only game in town which is about these um you know elizabeth taylor and warren Beatty are these two dreamers living in vegas who you know who almost make a go of a of a kind of a fantasy life together and 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 then ultimately kind of work it out in a realistic way. I think there's a lot of truth in that what you just said. And I think you can look at a writer's career and if you look closely and 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 
and acutely, you can start to see connections like that. You can start to see that this wouldn't probably existed without this, or this probably was affected by something that came earlier. You are affected by the things you do. You learn on every script that you write. You suddenly see doors that open up. And, and I think there's truth in that connection with, with uh, The Only Game. It, uh, it was directed by George Stevens. And I wanted, since you mentioned The House, I wanted to go back and say The House in From Noon to Three really reminds me of uh, The House in Giant. I wondered if that was an, a, an, a direct homage. I was too young to be a part of like the production design meetings. But I picked up on that as well. It's made very similar. But, you know, we should talk a little bit about some of the people involved behind the camera. So, sure. So a key component to this film is the cinematographer, Lucian Ballard. So I wrote down some of Lucian's credits. And I just have to say, this is a guy, Lucian Ballard, who goes all the way back to silent films. And, I mean, he does The Getaway, The Wild Bunch, True Grit, City of Fear, um, um, uh, the outlaw in 1943. He's married to Merle Oberon in the thirties. I remember he was very dapper in style. He always wore not, he didn't wear khaki pants, but he was like whitish khaki clothes. And he was very style. had sort of a safari jacket on all the time and he had panache. I remember him up on the, on the crane, you know, like looking down with these stylists. He was very stylish guy. And my father leaned very heavily on Lucian's cinematography uh, my father was, you know, a writer turned director and often that's cinematography is not the strength. So, so Lucian played a big part in this film and there's some really nice camera work. I have to say, I think that Lucian's doing it. Um, the other person who's critical to this whole thing is the guy who bought the book and brought it to Warner brothers, which is a guy named Mike Frankovich. So Mike Frankovich is a very big producer. This was the last film he produced, but again, just looking at Mike's credits, I mean, he's doing, he did the shootist. He did, uh, he did uh, Maroon. He did Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice. I mean, he goes all the way back to 1935 as well. And, and that forms part of one of the memories I have, which was because it was on the Warner's lot in 74, this was a studio picture. There was a crew of guys, mostly guys, or very few women, unfortunately, but mostly guys. And these guys have been working at Warner Brothers since like the 30s. So the guy named Al Overton, who did the sound, and Russ Saunders, who was the AD, it's, it's this bridge back to like the original filmmaking days. And that vibe was sort of on the set. These guys have been doing, this is probably their hundredth picture, every one of these people. And Lucian is just, I mean, they're just to them, they were such veteran grinders, you know? I mean, it was really interesting to pick up on that vibe. I really thought, I felt I got to see a window into what old movie making really was like because that they came from that era. Most of the people who worked on this film, the other person is Elmer Bernstein. His score. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful score. I think the melody of uh, uh, From Noon Till Three, the song itself with the lyrics, I've never forgotten. Oddly enough, I find myself once in a while remembering the lyrics of that song. And his score as well uh, serves the film incredibly well. And, uh, and he's in and it. He's Elmer's in it. And, and I, yeah. I work with, with uh, composers. When I tell them that I met Elmer Bernstein, they're like, they want to hear everything about it. I mean, the guy is revered among composers. He okay. really is. One of the and best. he was just a wonderful guy. I mean, I remember on the set, just a funny, lovely, great guy. I mean, just a really easygoing guy. Well, that's unusual, right? Because typically if the film is finished or almost finished before the director starts talking to the composer, right? But he had to be involved because the song had to exactly. be part of the... Exactly, he did. The and my father was very collaborative. I'm sure, my fa- I'm sure when that conversation happened and Elmer said, can I be on the set? My father said, yes. I remember... Elmer was on the set quite a bit. I mean, he liked hanging around on the set and he liked us. He liked hanging around with the kids, you know, my brother and I and Bronson's kids. 
That's great. Well, I, and then in this scene with Elmer Bernstein as the two composers, is the one who sings the song is, uh, is Alan Bergman, right. who wrote the lyrics with, his, with Marilyn right. Bergman. Yeah. He does a nice job with it, too. He does. It's a haunting song. It's a, it's a really yeah. powerful, oddly haunting song. Um, it's the, it saves Yeah, radio. it does. Um, so, uh, you know, you mentioned um, the movie being a two-hander, and it very much is. And I think one of the reasons why I didn't seek it out for such a long time was that I just assumed knowing that your father wrote plays and, uh, and, and what I knew about the movie, that it was basically the two of them in a house, the whole movie. But it's, it's, it's very cinematic, especially the opening yeah. sequence, the dream sequence, and, and then the, you know, the whole second half of the <laughs> film. And, and uh, I, I, guess, I guess you're saying that... Uh, and, 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 I, I like desperate characters too, and uh, clearly, you know, your your uh, Frank knew how to make a make a, an actual a real right. movie. It wasn't it, that that wasn't just a filmed play, um, and uh, and I guess I guess you're saying that you know, a way to do it was just to surround yourself with these people who you know have had decades of you know of filmmaking, experience. particularly because of the genre. I mean, I think my father was really smart in the regards of using Lucian. Again, the guy's coming off guys coming off the wild yeah. bunch. I mean, and, 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 yeah. and, and true grit. I think he did ride, ride the high yeah, country. Ride the high country. I mean, he's a guy who's shooting the best Western stuff around at that time, literally shooting the best. So I, I think, yeah. I mean, when I did my first film Nightcrawler, I, I got, was lucky enough fortunate enough to work with Robert Ellswit who shot boogie nights and I'm shooting a movie in LA and I very much leaned into Robert Ellswit. I mean, I certainly have my own opinions and, and I'm sure Frank had his own opinion as well, but, but, but I was recreating a way of like, I'm going to lean into somebody who really knows how to shoot this world. And I think it was really wise of Frank to do that. Yeah. Um, the, your, your fa- father published a book of his own production diaries called uh, I wake up screening yeah. and in uh, 1993, but he only included the four other feature films he directed and not from noon till three. So I'm really glad we're able to talk to you today. Um, uh, was that because it, uh, he didn't include it because it was his only fully back studio feature and he, he, he just didn't keep a diary during production or. He, he you know was keeping he, uh, a, yeah, he started keeping a diary. My memory is he started keeping a diary in 69. So I'm sure he was keeping a diary. Mm. I think he saw the other four films as, as literally independent films in which he had much more control. Um, I don't remember an enormous number of creative fights that he had with the studio, but I'm sure they were enough where, where things were changed or maybe he didn't have full control over how it was marketed or, you know, what the performance of it ultimately was or how it was perceived. I think he felt closer to the other four films again, because he, they were made on a shoestring budget. He's, he's, he's literally standing side by side with the other filmmakers every morning and night while he's shooting. I think he felt closer to it um creatively and that's probably why he included it i know he loved from noon till three i mean it should never he never he he never lost any of his love for the film as the years went by and none of us really did i mean i just haven't had a chance to see it but but he was always extraordinarily proud of it he was able to keep it very faithful to his novel which i i guess was published a couple of years before production began but did you know the uh particular inspiration for the novel obviously he had all this experience writing for television westerns and 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 uh the last notch and and uh, other western stuff before was there do you know if there was a 
particular no it's funny i do remember so we would always all eat dinner together and my father worked at the house so he was always writing upstairs so when he was done writing he'd come down he'd have dinner with us and he was around during the day as well but i do remember when he was starting to write from when he started to write the book i remember sitting around the table and he was saying i i i want to say that he read a real a real a real event that happened or some piece of an event and I remember at the table going like, I'm thinking of doing a story about a guy who, who doesn't want to go on a robbery because he feels he has a bad feeling about it. And he, and he stays behind with this woman. I remember him telling the story. And I do remember over the next couple months, him sort of filling us in like, and then this is going to happen. And I never got to the point where then he finished it. And he goes, I don't have a title. And the only thing any of us knew, my mom probably knew more because she was reading it, but we, the, but we boys were in school and middle school, high school, whatever it was. And he was going like, well, I don't have a title. What should I call it? And my brother, John, there's a scene where, where they go and there's a sound in the barn and, and there's a kicking and she goes, it's only a cow. And my brother, John, funnily or seriously said, why don't you call it? It's only a cow. I remember that. My, my father was thinking that was like absurd idea. And then uh, <laughs> I do remember that at the dinner table. And then, and then he came up with from noon till three, but it was one of those ones where he was filling us in while he was writing it at the dinner table. He was excited by it. There's, there's also um, among his television Western work, there's an episode of The Rifleman that he wrote where uh, Michael Landon plays an outlaw who's injured uh, trying to save Chuck Connors' kid. Right. And so he's separated from the gang as when they go off and do their robberies and stuff and spends, spends some time in the house with, uh, with Connors and the kid and falls in love with the woman and he gets rehabilitated just by being away from, from the outlaws. It's, it doesn't have any kind of great irony at the end, like uh, from noon till three or, or, the, or uh, the last notch. But uh, again, you can see the kind of shell of an idea of, a, of an outlaw being separated from his gang. I didn't know that was the trait. plot. I did not know that was the plot of the rifleman. He always, I think he did more than one rifleman. Maybe he only did one. But that's interesting you're saying that. that I can see the direct connection between that story and, and from noon till three. See, that's, I think, I think he's exploring things there of a guy, a gangster, you know, or, or outlaw being left behind at a house. I mean, there's direct yeah. connection there. I did not know that. That's actually really interesting. I'll send you, uh, I'll, I'll send you the link to it later. It's, it, you can watch it. He did a bunch of Have Gun, Will Travels. He did a lot of Western TV work. He did. Uh, wanted Wanted Dead or, or Alive, he did. These were all, he was a big Western TV guy, yeah. There was a TV show, a uh, Disney uh, Western show, that I think he might have even had a hand in creating a call. Is it Texas Te- John Texas, Slaughter? Texas John Slaughter, I right? Don't know. Have you ever seen any I, of those? I, I've seen one. I don't know if he helped create it, but I definitely know okay. he, uh, he worked on it. Yeah. Texas John Slaughter. Yeah. That's, that's one I, you know, the Disney stuff is so hard yeah. to find because they, you know, they, they archive yeah. it, but I'd, I'd love to be able to see that. I don't think it's going to be showing up on Disney Plus anytime. Uh, maybe we can only hope. <laughs> we can oh. only hope. Do you, uh, he, 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 as I mentioned earlier, he softened the ending a little bit, uh, and Graham winds up, uh, it's a much more kind of whimsical, absurdist comic, comic ending of the film. But in the book, he, he dies suffering, uh, once you, do you, do you remember if there was a moment where he pondered keeping that original ending or if he was forced to change I don't ending? remember and I'm I'm in a positive guess here as somebody who works in the studio system I have no doubt that that was a Mike Frankovich Warner Brothers note I mean right. I, I mean they paid they paid good money for the book 
Um, Frank was not like a, a big known director. Um, I mean, he was known to a degree, but the, here's a big Western with Charles Bronson. It's a big asset for the studio. And, and like you said, it's fairly faithful to the book, but I can imagine when they got to the end, it was probably like, Frank, you know, uh, we want this to be a more commercial ending. And I don't recall any conversations where Frank felt that, that things were suffering creatively. I, I, I don't believe he would have done it if he felt it was creatively uh, diminishing his work. He, he would have fought it. So he must have been in tune with I think, it to some degree. I, th I think it works just yeah. as well as the ending of the book. He never complained um, about changing the ending ever. Well, and if anything, the ending of the film makes Amanda's death that much more shocking, you know, when it happens, because it's just, and when you reflect on it, it's really, uh, you know, uh, you know, amazing, the uh, act of will, uh, you know, on her, on her. You part. can't predict where this movie's going. You no. can't at any moment, you don't know where this movie's going to go, which is, it's just breathtaking to me to watch him be doing this. I mean, cause it's kind of what I'm doing in my work right now. Um, and, and, I guess I got that spirit. It's just this unpredictable out of the box way of doing a movie. Um, I give him huge points for it. Now I'm so glad I got to watch it again. Well, what I wrote down was that uh, thinking if, uh, if you've ever thought at all about the influence of from noon to three is that your stories of, uh, and your films uh, are made unpredictable because they're driven by these unusual outsider protagonists who you know could could go anyway and they live in their own world and they're either ruled by a very specific code of honor uh like roman israel or a, a complete lack of one like jake gyllenhaal and nightcrawler yeah I, the, the characters do tend to take you to those places but the other thing as well is and i can see in this there, I, frank is commenting here the, his, his narrative so so he's taking these characters and rather than follow the characters directly through their character arcs, he's now imposing this template of narrative commentary. And it's affecting the story. The story is starting, mm. the story starts to get driven by the commentary side of it. And the characters start to be, be moving along alongside the commentary. He's doing that consciously because the commentary is obviously very important to him. The, the power of the myth. What is the West built on? You know, how much of it was real, if you have any of it? You know, was it all a sham? This was an important thing for the film. And he's doing that. And I do do that in my films. You know, I take these strong characters, but then I sort of have the same mindset. I want to say something. And it's a fine line when you're, when you're doing a movie like that. And, and you have to be very careful because you could wind up with a message, a message movie, God help you, but you could wind up on a soapbox. I think Frank thread the needle really well here. I think it's a really entertaining film. And I think, I think it, it's, it's a high wire act when you do this, when you start thinking that, that, that social commentary is a part of my film, and, and like in the seventies, it was not an uncommon way of thinking. You know, it was funny when Nightcrawler came out, people came up after and goes, God, it really is like, it's about something. And I said, God, it's, you have to understand. I, I remember in the seventies where if you made a film and it wasn't about something, people go like, why are you making a film? What's the point? Like, look at the wild bunch. I mean, look, look at all the themes that are involved in the wild bunch. Look at all the themes involved in true Grit. I mean, there's just so much going on. So I think Frank, Frank's working in the seventies. He's trying to tell a story about these strong characters. But at the same time, he's not going to allow them to drive his story. His story is going to be driven by what he wants to say about this world. And, and again, very tough needle to thread, but he does it. Do you think uh, that gives it an almost meta quality 
I think I feel a little bit of that, you know, in that it's about storytelling. And then there's a book called From Noon to Three. Absolutely. Based on a book called From Absolutely. Noon to Three. Absolutely. It's like a Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's about the legend, the creation of the legend within the movie with the song, the title of the film. And, uh, right. and that's what makes it feel fresh. It's odd. There's so many films I watch in the seventies that don't feel fresh, particularly ones that have been forgotten. And a lot of times they're forgotten. And you go like, well, I can maybe see why, you know, it was passed over. But this one just resonates. The minute it came on, I was going like, this just feels really contemporary yeah. thematically to me. And you said you're moving towards more of that in, in your writing right now is I, I, certainly something like velvet, velvet buzzsaw has a, you know, uh, a quasi meta element to it. it. That quasi meta element. They, look, all three movies that I've directed have some level of commentary. And if I'm moving toward anything, it might be moving away from commentary a little bit. I think, I think it's, okay. it's, it's like I said, it's very difficult to do. Um, I've done it effectively at times and maybe even a little less effectively at times. Other times, part of it's part of the fact that I've only directed three films, you know, I, my directing is trying to catch up to my writing, to be totally honest. Um, I'm doing it, but, but, you know, here's Frank doing the same sort of thing, working in, in a major studio system with one of the biggest assets of his day. And it, it, I, I, we never, you know, he never discussed nervousness or fear, but it must have been nerve wracking at times to take to take to take this huge star and say, I'm going to look at him in an entirely different way. I'm not going to look at him in any way that you've ever seen him before. And I didn't go back and read all the reviews from the day, but I'm sure there were many yeah. people that were taken aback. And what is this? And not just by the thematic, you know, creation that he's done and the narrative creation that he's done, but just the way that Bronson is moving through the film. It's a really gutsy thing to do. What he, what he's doing here, incredibly gutsy, but he was that guy. He was, there was no challenge that he was not like afraid of facing. He was, he was, a, he'd come out of world war two, you know, he was a tough guy from the Bronx. I mean, he's sweet, smart, but, but a tough kid from the Bronx who got drafted at 18 and saw combat in World War II. So he was, he was nobody's pushover, that's for sure. And so he and Bronson probably connected on that level. I'm sure Charlie, I'm not saying Charlie saw his match. Charlie was a coal miner, so I can't say anybody was Charlie's match physically. But I'm sure my father, my father had steel inside of him. And I'm, I'm sure Charlie saw that early on and they connected on that. You know, it's funny when he shows up at the end wearing the hospital gown. Right. Uh, I was reminded that if there are multiple people who tell the story of working on a film with Bronson, where he tells a story about how when he was a, a, a kid in a uh, coal mining family, that the family was so poor that he had to wear his, his sister's dress. I read that. It's inconceivable, the level of poverty that he must have gone through for that to be the case. I mean, yeah. I, he was, Charlie was a wonderful guy to hang out with. Very friendly, great sense of humor. Huh. Um, you know, the other person my father was really enthralled with working with was the leader of the gang, a guy named Doug Fowley. And Doug Fowley was, you know, again, my father growing up with all these like studio film, Doug Fowley goes all the way back to the early thirties and was in battleground and all these Westerns. And I remember, I remember the day that Doug Fowley showed up, my father was kind of in awe. It was sort of like, here's this guy named Bronson's the star of the film, but Bronson wasn't around when my father was going to the movies 30 years earlier. Doug Fowley was the guy who my father was looking up at the Bronx movie screen 50 feet tall and my father was utterly enamored with doug fowl i mean really like he was like sort of starstruck by doug fowley which was kind of interesting to watch douglas fowley is the director of the movie within the movie in singing in the rain oh my god he's the, really he's, wow. he's the director what is it the du- the dueling right, cavalier, the dueling cavalier. Right. yeah the guy right. with the little cap 
Yeah. An incredible <laughs> career. I mean, again, these guys, these, these go back to the silent era. I mean, this, the, 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 all of these people are connected to the almost the earliest. I mean, obviously, it was back in the early 20s as well. But these people all connect to the earliest days of filmmaking. And they're there in the 70s. And now here, me and Johnny and Tony, we're sort of now 45 years past it. But there's this is long arc that I feel connected to. I think it's it's really a part of the tradition of, of classical Hollywood filmmaking. It's not a um, it's a, it's you know, it's a, it's an it's an offbeat an unusual movie, which, you know, we've, we've discussed and unpredictable, but it's also very much a, a part of the, of the classical tradition, which isn't really the, as a, when, when uh, your father was writing and directing movies, wasn't, wasn't necessarily the tradition he was working under, uh, at least in terms of the studio resources. He made all the other films, I guess, uh, independently. All independently, um, raise the money independently, complete creative control, uh, uh, he would get a start, do what I do. I'm doing what he's doing. He would get Shirley MacLaine and get the financing. He would get, you know, the person he needed to get the finance and he would do the film and, and had complete creative control. But um, like I said, I think a lot of people would step into a movie with Charlie and Warner Brothers and go, I need to make a commercial movie. This is my time to make a commercial film. I'm going to hit every commercial button I can think of. And he just went completely the other way. He was like, I'm not even thinking about it. Um, and I, it's, it's really it makes me feel really good to look back and see where he was creatively and what he was doing. Because, because I think I certainly aspire to that. I'm not, as, I'm aspiring to do something, something new every time I step out to try to do something. I'm never trying to recreate anything. That's great. Do you, do you um, have any other mem- memories of, of the film's reception? I said, you, I know you said you didn't read the reviews, but uh, do you remember, was there any disappointment uh, that it, you know, and it wasn't a blockbuster. Yeah, was it? Did it? Did it do? Did it do well enough? No, I mean, it did. I don't think it did do well enough. I think there was disappointment. I have a vague memory, but I could be projecting my own experiences. Like I don't know if he felt the marketing was handled properly. And I think I think you look through the posters. There's a wide range of posters you can find for this. I think the studio's trying to find out how they can market this. You know, they don't, I think the studio's having trouble leaning into this. Uh, the marketing department's having trouble. I don't know if my father was happy on the release date. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I have some memory that he felt maybe it got buried a little bit. Um, reviews were mixed. And no, no matter what a writer, director, or filmmaker tells you, mixed reviews don't make you happy. I mean, I mean, you can always say I polarize people and that's fine. And there's some truth in that. And it's easy now to look back and go, wow, you made something that we're talking about 45 years later. But at the time, you do want everybody to love your, your stuff. You just do. You want, you want to get the 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. There was no Rotten Tomatoes back then, but you wanted to open up every magazine and newspaper and see the great review. He didn't get that. And I don't remember any grave disappointment about it. He, he was happy with the film he had made. But, but I don't think he was happy with, with how it was released, probably, how it was marketed. And, and the reception was probably left him feeling a little bit sort of like, not a hundred percent happy about it. Yeah, the the ads I've seen don't seem to hide too much that it's a period film or or a western, but uh, maybe and maybe that was a part of it too because this is this is the time you know mid mid to late seventies when the last of those kind of you know revisionist anti western westerns were being made and even though Bronson went on to make uh, one more western the next year, this is really kind of the tail end and there's. Very few from like seventy seven to seventy nine, and then Heaven's Gate comes along, and that 
that really is the end of the Western for a, a long time. After well, that. you can imagine if he'd gotten Nicholson, he was very happy that Bronson, but if he'd gotten Nicholson, you can yeah. imagine the marketing would have been very different because Nicholson already had an established uh, persona of, of insanity and craziness. And like, I'm going to see something unexpected. Right. And you can imagine the one sheet and poster probably would have leaned more heavily into this is an unexpected film dealing with the darkest myths and legends of the world. They would have somehow incorporated that. But what I what I get the sense when I look at the marketing material on this is Bronson is an action God at this period. This is where the money's coming from. How do we somehow keep that persona and, and sell the movie? And so when you start to look at it that way, none of the myth-making nihilistic legendary sort of deconstruction and stuff, that's never going to make it into your advertising. So I'm sure, I'm sure if I was Frank and the movie performed the way it did, I probably would have thought they didn't present the film the way I made it. They didn't, they didn't, I'm putting words in Frank's mouth, but I'm trying to imagine what he would have thought. This is not the film I made. They're selling it in the wrong way. They should be leaning into it to some degree and get to other stuff and let people know what they're walking into prep, prep, certainly prep the reviewers who probably walked in thinking they were going to see some fairly standard, you know, vaguely new take on a Western. And we're probably like, what the hell is this? You know? And I, right. I don't think it serves you well. A lot of people say, Oh, it should just come out of left field and roll over people. If something's really unique, it's not a bad idea to give some signal beforehand. Like this is really a different film. And this, this is the film we wanted to make. So just like, like, let me just preface this by saying this, this is, this is, this is taking you to places that you don't normally go to in a film. We're aware of that. We feel really comfortable and confident. I don't think there's anything wrong with teeing it up a little bit like that. But, but if I had looked at the one sheets and not been a part of the film, I would have watched the movie and go, Whoa, Jill Ireland kills herself at the end. He winds up in an insane asylum. And it's like, where, from where we started, what? Right. And now I'm going off to, to wherever I'm going to watch TV at home with Westerns that are just recycling the same form. I'm, I'm going like, it took a certain kind of person to really embrace it. And people did embrace it. The people who loved it at the time, there were definitely good reviews. Yeah. There were people who yes. loved it. And gave glowing reviews. Yeah. I mean, they, a lot of people saw it for what it was, so which was really interesting. I wonder if there was ever a real possibility that Nicholson would do it because you know his next the movie he made instead of this one, and I think his first film after Cuckoo's Nest is The Missouri Breaks, also a yeah. western, and also where he's playing a kind of yeah. a, you know a, 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 a you know an outlaw who's you know a bit of a. You know, a bit like Bronson. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, you can see they're circling the same territory. There's the choices are being made on, on, on things that are not dissimilar. And you can see the choice that he made. And like I said, Frank was always very happy with Bronson. He was, I, I can't tell you how happy he was working with him. I thought he did a great job, but. Well, I think he's really special in the film and you know, it's, is this, this is Bron this year's Bronson centennial. So we picked three films this summer to show you know, of his, and this is, this is one we definitely wanted to show his, you know, his right. range. Um, and it really is, it really is an outlier. I mean, there aren't, there aren't many others where he strayed from the action formula. Um, maybe, maybe moments here and there in some of the films where he's a little bit lighter than, than, uh, you expect, but, uh, uh, he's, he's really, uh, he really has a lot of range in this one. Yeah. And he was aware of it. He, like I said, he called my father up and I was very specifically said this was like one of his favorite parts and, and, and Jill's definitely as well. Jill was a huge fan of this film, both for herself and for Charlie. Yeah. It, I'm sure one of the reasons he wanted to do it was because it gave them a chance to have something really good. to do. Absolutely. Together. And they were, they were really a great, they were great together. I mean, they were just absolutely totally tied together. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a real love affair and that comes through on the screen too. 
And sometimes I think when you watch couples do scenes that involve, you know, love and romance and stuff, a lot of times it feels like somehow it's, you're losing something because it exists in real life. But I don't feel that with this film. I do feel like they're sort of discovering each other as the film goes along rather than like they know each other well. Yeah. They're really sinking into the parts They you, they really, you know, because of, you know, they're, 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 they're characters who have a very, very specific vision of the world and, or at least of their, you know, their own little yeah. moral world. And, and, and you, and you feel that. And, and I agree, it feels like they're discovering each other. Um, so I want to wrap it up and just ask you about uh, your father's other films. Uh, Des- Desperate Characters has at least got a release on, on DVD at, at some point and is, and is out there. But um, the, the films he made after From Noon to Three are, are tough to find. Is there anything going on with them right now in terms of preservation uh, or, or restoration to... to get more eyes on them? I honestly don't know. I, I would like to think that, that they exist in a format that can be archived. Um, it would be tragic to think that, that maybe they would be one of the films that would slip through and not be archived. Um, I, I don't think, I think Johnny, Tony and I, and my mom, we're still, we still oversee as a state. Um, I, but I haven't heard any conversation about re-releases of any of the other films. I honestly don't know. I mean, Desperate Characters is something I haven't seen again in 45, 40 years. I haven't seen that film. Right. And, and a number of his other films I haven't seen either, to be honest. Well, Paramount has the, has the materials and negatives on Desperate Characters, but the other, uh, I think there's three more features that he wrote and directed, right? Uh, Once right. in Paris, The Gig, and uh, is it the, the, not The Loneliest Man? The Luckiest Man. It's, Luckiest man, um, and uh, and and so uh, just I'd be curious to know if uh, you know if they know where the where the elements are or uh, at the moment, and if anything could be done to to get more people. I don't know. It's actually I'm glad you brought it up. I'm going to ask uh, my mom and my brother brothers see if they okay. know anything about it. Right, well, we have a um, we have a a decent archive here at the university. We've got uh, the Wisconsin Center for film and theater uh, research that's got a lot of great uh, materials um not not so much uh, some some film material but a lot of papers uh, related to film and television i just discovered today in doing a little research that we have all of ulu grossbard's uh, really papers here yeah did ulu, go, so, ulu didn't go to wisconsin did ulu go to wisconsin not i not i had i didn't get, have enough time to, to see if that was true but we have a, uh, a professor who established the archive who did a lot of work uh, in the film world, you know, meeting with filmmakers and and wow. uh, and theater directors and 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 getting them to deposit their stuff here. So it, that 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 wasn't necessarily a connection. A lot of the biggest uh, collections are from graduates like uh, uh, Dory right. Sherry and and Walt, Walter Wanger and and um, people like that. And there's they're really great collections. But are uh, you in Madison? Is that uh, where you are? Yeah, I'm in, I'm, I'm in Madison. It's a great right now, university. So. I mean, Wisconsin is a great, oh, great. university. It really is. A lot, I mean, it, it, it's a big school, but it's a legacy in terms in so many different areas. Not the not the least of which is politically. It's an incredible school. I mean, it, it really is. I agree, and it's it's nice to hear. Um, we've got a, it's a great film town too. So we've got uh, you know the, the Cinematech program. The students have their own student union film program. Um, we've got a film festival every right. year and, uh, and, and we'd love to have you come and join us sometime. Invite me. I'll, I'll, I'll make it. I'll try to make time. Okay. I, great. I, I like Madison great. and I, I love talking to you. Well, good talking to you, my friend. Thanks, Dan.
so uh, Friday, January twenty eighth. Uh, there's a full the, the the start of the New York Times uh, movie section starts with a full page ad for something that was going to be a sneak preview, and uh, interestingly enough, it's got a tie in with Telethon. Oh, uh, do you 77? know seventy seven? Uh, is it a Don Siegel film? No, nope. seventy seven. It wouldn't have been Capricorn One. They wouldn't have been screening that early. No. Nope. Uh, tie-in with Telephone. 77. Is Donald Pleasance in it? That's a good question. Is Donald Pleasance <laughs> in this? I watched this movie earlier, uh, within the last 12 months. Um, no, he's not. Although it's one of those all-star casts that if he was in it, he might not even be listed. In so t- is it is it a Russian conspiracy movie? Is it? Is it? Uh, it's not a Russian conspiracy movie, but it but it was it was based on a novel by the same guy who wrote the novel that got turned into Telephon. Oh, okay, and you're gonna have to tell me who that is because that's Walter Wager. Oh, Walter Wager. So is it uh, Twilight's Last Gleaming? Yes. Right. A very very good film, which yeah. just popped up on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I thought I think that's where I watched it. I watched it somewhere. Yeah, you saw it recently? Again, I saw it probably because I was researching something else. Um, uh, I'm a big I had fan. Seen, I had seen it. I had certainly seen, I don't think I saw it in a theater because that was rated R. And uh, Was it? Hmm. Yeah, which is interesting because, but does that movie end? And by the way, spoiler alert to yeah. everyone, I should remember this, but do they, do they kill the president they while do. they're- They kill President Charles <laughs> Durning, they- yeah. They, you know, it's kind of, I guess, inevitable. Uh, some, uh, I guess it's not, it doesn't qualify as an assassination as so much a kind of sacrificial yeah. type of thing. Right. But, uh, yeah, I always, uh, Danny, Danny Perry in um, Guide for the Film Fanatic talks about Death Race 2000 and how it's, you know, even though it's a futuristic satire that it's the only film that ends with the actual assassination of a of a president and i was thinking well twilight's last gleaming you know has the has the president getting killed at the end yeah yeah it sure does yeah to me maybe the the, interesting part of that film yeah and the late william smith also is the kind of uh out of control psychotic who I think they, they take care of him within the first half hour of the film or so, but... Yeah. No, I'm very impressed with Twilight's Last Gleaming. I, I don't know how how much I I like the split screen that he's doing. He doesn't... Aldrich doesn't do nearly as much with it. Uh, he's as, no De Palma. He's no De Palma. That's exactly what I was <laughs> going to say. But um, but for his 70s films, I, I, think it's his, I think it's his last really good film. I know there are some people who love all the marbles and... I guess there are some fans of the Frisco Kid, which I liked when I was ten. But um, oh my god, I didn't even know he directed that. That's crazy. Yeah, he did. After Twilight's Last Gleaming, he did The Choir Boys. Yeah, the Frisk, which I'm, which I don't like. Uh, the Frisco Kid and and all the marbles. Uh, but Twilight's Last Gleaming is um, pretty um, pretty serious filmmaking. I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of that one. Uh, great Burt Lancaster performance, and the and the you know, and the you know the the, the kind of offbeat uh, approach to 
an action storyline too. Isn't that isn't it that Lancaster was a colonel or leader in Vietnam, and he was yeah he was t- he's taken down or you know because he knows secrets about the war, and there was there's they were trying to hush him up, and then they ended up putting him in jail, right? So he escapes from jail. And with the help of Burt Young, William Smith, and Paul Winfield, he takes charge of a nuclear silo, right? And he's gonna yep. he's gonna launch the bomb unless the government releases what are basically the Pentagon Papers, right? That say right. that America knew Vietnam wasn't winnable or something yep. like that. Yeah. And and the new the new president Charles Durning has to deal with that. Right. Well, I say check it out. You're you're not crazy about it. No, I I I definitely liked it. I feel like interestingly enough for all of the split screen and all of the stars and all of the stuff, it feels it feels oddly sort of stagey and static to me. Yeah. He filmed it entirely in Germany, I think. Like on these there was these, there were these new sound stages and uh they filmed a bunch of American German co-productions there, uh, right around this time. I know Fedora Billy Wilder's film was another one, and there's a couple more in there uh, that they shot. So maybe it was you know not being in America and you know being bound to these German sound stages that that yeah. gave it that feel. There's it's a weird. There's a, I I think I feel it feels to me like it could easily be and would be just as successful as like a radio drama. You mm, know. Yeah. There's so a lot of that. guys like talking seriously about stuff. Right. Right. And there's a there's a brightly lit artificiality to it that is in all of Aldrich's 70 films that there's a kind of a you know, straight-faced you know, straight-on shooting of things that Yeah. that um but I, that one I think looks a little moodier than yeah, the other films of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, you know, it's one of these movies where the commercial and the whole concept of it scared the hell out of me as a kid. I'm like, oh god, this is like, you know, all this apocalyptic stuff. Sure. And I'm and I'm seeing all these movies in the 70s and knowing, well, it could easily end with the Earth blowing up. You know, <laughs> like, right. Like I, I've got no guarantees that the bomb isn't going to go off at the end of this. Yeah, that's a, that would be a good double feature for 77, uh, Twilight's Last Gleaming, followed by Damnation Alley. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, it's got a Jerry Goldsmith score, so of course, yep. I, uh, you have to recommend it at some point. So does Damnation Alley, I think. Uh, yes. Another good reason to pair those. So, uh, moving on, uh, there were two documentaries playing, uh, two sort of like seminal, iconic documentaries playing in New York that week. Uh, one of them uh, starring a future movie star uh, and governor of California. Ah, yes, Pumping Iron. Was it at the mm. Cinema One? It was at the Plaza Theater. Oh, at the Plaza. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know when Pumping Iron originally came out. Oh, it, yeah. In other words, it's been playing for a while. I mean, I don't know. It's I think it came out in '77. Okay. Um, and then, uh, also, uh, on, uh, the other one, which I have to admit, I don't know that I've ever seen, at least not all of it. Um, Harlan County, USA. Oh, it's very good. It's very good. It's, you know, it's frightening when you look at the, 
you know what was what was actually happening there and the and the pressures that were going on and interestingly have you ever seen the um the hbo film uh oh i've forgotten the name of it but um from the mid 80s where charles bronson plays jock yablonski the union leader whose assassination was kind of precipitated yes much of what was yes. going on in harlan county mm-hmm. i have seen that and i can't uh, remember what I'll, that's called yeah I, f- I forget too but i remember mm. keanu reeves that plays his ultimately the guy who was ultimately bronson's assassin yeah, that's crazy came out the same year i think it was on hbo the same year that death wish 3 came out or maybe the year after death wish 3 has uh has bill and um the Jack Yablonski film has Ted in it. so <laughs> That's funny. Um, at the Columbia 2 was a sneak preview. Um, and here, I'll see if you can get it just from this. Uh, it's the only movie I can think of where Charles Grodin is sporting a full beard. And he's the star. Like the romantic lead, I would say. Uh, is it that film um, with Marlo Thomas? Thieves? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Never Ever seen it? it? I have no, not. No. Played, it played uh, played the Arlington Theater in Arlington Heights, Illinois, where I was, you know, seven years old at the time. But I remember when it was playing, but I didn't get to see it. It's, um, is it Herb Gardner? Yes. Is it, is, yeah. So Herb Gardner was the writer of A Thousand Clowns. Mm-hmm. which was a, a big kind of cult movie, a play and then a cult movie from the 60s. Yeah. The film was directed by the same guy who directed the play, Fred Coe. But mm. I think Gardner himself directed this one, right? Yes. Um, and interestingly, they don't tell you the name of this movie in the ad. They just say, Yeah, they Marlo, used to do that. Marlo Thomas and Charles Grodin star in Herb Gardner's comedy about New York. Now... I don't know what that was about. Did it have something to do with the fact that they hadn't figured out the title yet? Because, you, you know, I, the way I've always heard it, you'd go to those things and then you'd find out what the movie was called. Yeah. But there was something about advertising it where you couldn't put the name in the paper. and I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I remember I got a phone call, like sort of automated survey. Oh, no, it wasn't automated. Um somebody called and they were they were trying to they were trying to come up with a name for this movie they were going to release and they were pitching different <laughs> different um titles to me and it was the um Jennifer Grey sailing movie which oh, i think yeah. eventually was called Wind <laughs> which i'm pretty sure was one of the titles they gave me but I, one i never picked you know they kept saying like how about this or this or how about this or this and every single other title they had was more interesting than Wind and of course that's what they wound up using was Breaking Wind one of them? It, it, uh, it should have been. Yeah. Not a good movie. Never saw it. Carol Ballard. Yeah, which is right. You'd think, okay, it's going to look yeah. beautiful. And, and maybe it does, but I don't mm. know. I think I never got over the fact that they didn't pick one of the better titles that they had. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, even like Against the Wind or some shit like that. I think there, was, there were plenty of like sort of variations that had wind in it, but just wind. Wow. So that's how they do those things, huh? They that's how they did ran- this one. It was strange, people. right? Like a random 
20-something-year-old in New York or 30-year-old. I don't know how old I was. Wind. Uh, okay, another, and then there was a full-page ad for something that was called The Best Entertainment Picture of 1977. Best Entertainment Picture. The Best Entertainment Picture of looking, 1977. If you're looking for, uh, you know, something to pass out in while you're drunk, I guess it's, you know. And you I'll, I'll read you, I'll read you more of the tagline. Okay. It's comedy, exclamation point. It's adventure, exclamation point. It's romance, exclamation point. It's, and then they give you the title of the film. Swashbuckler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're really not doing anything to, to tell you anything about this movie. Does it have stars? It does. And, well, yeah, they, these were all stars at the time. Uh, and Mother, it was huge- Jugs, and Speed. Uh, no, but that's not a bad guess. Uh, uh, directed by Arthur Hiller. Oh, Silver Streak. Silver Streak. Right, which opened Huge hit. Christmas of 76, which is... I, right. I think I saw it on my Christmas break that year. Yeah, this was a full-page oh. ad announcing that it was now at a theater near you. Well, I love Silver Streak. I saw it again. I think I've kind of gone in and out with it, but I saw it again recently. Yeah. Um, and And I... I really enjoyed it again. I like those seventies Hitchcockian, you know, just just yeah, foul play, like foul, foul play. Yeah. Same same writer, yeah. Colin Higgins, and yeah, um, yeah it's um, it's fun. And Gene Wilder's still good. He has a few he has a few sappy moments in it uh, early on, but he's mostly his really funny manic self through it. Mm-hmm. That was that was that was the last time I tried to watch Frisco Kid. That was mine. My problem, it was, you know, Gene in full Robin Williams mode with the with the puppy dog eyes and the, you know, this the feel sorry for me kind of kind of look. It's interesting because for me, after Young Frankenstein, the 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 Gene Wilder movie, I remember having the fondest thoughts about at the time and seeing as many. of the, Well, I, I loved Silver Streak and I'm sure I saw it. Yeah. God knows how many times in a theater and then afterwards on TV. But the other one that I really liked that I, that is another movie that feels to me like would have to be rated R now is the world's greatest lover. Yeah. Um, I, I saw it. It, it, it's a really good looking film, right? Like mm-hmm. he kind of, he kind of took that page from young Frankenstein and mm-hmm. hired a really good cinematographer and, um, that I remember. I remember there were certain certain things about it that I remember thinking were funny. I'm I'm not a fan, too big a fan of any of those films he wrote, directed, and starred in. Um, starting with Sherlock Holmes, Smarter Brother, and mm-hmm. and then there's uh, World's Greatest Lover, and then is it to, to skip all the way to Woman in Red and Haunted Honeymoon? Um, yeah, although I feel like there's a there's a pretty big gap in time and reputation between Woman in Red and Haunted Haunted Honeymoon yeah. was a bomb the second, but Woman in Red no. I thought was kind of a hit. It was, and you know, a big soundtrack. It did well in the theater, and it's you know, and it's definitely one of the better of the four films he wrote and directed. Is it a remake of something? It is, as is the World's Greatest Lover. World's Greatest Lover oh. is um, Fellini's The White Sheik. Oh. A variation on the white sheet. Oh, jeez. And uh, Woman in Red is Pardon Mon Affaire, which is a Jean Rochefort comedy from the 70s. Uh, uh, very similar. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's a, it's 
you know, I think it's even credited based on it. But, you know, he had, I just called to say I love you, and Kelly LeBrock was the it girl, and so, yeah, that was, that was a big hit. I, I like, I like Gene Wilder and Stir Crazy, too. I think he's, he's playing a totally different kind of character. Than oh, yeah, no, I love Stir Crazy, sure. He's, I mean, you know, he's, he's a real, you know, kind of an idiot in that film who, you know, even though he winds up in jail, everything kind of works out for him because of his ignorance, his bliss kind of, kind of yeah. thing. And Richard Pry- and having Richard Pryor always get sure. him out of the scraps, you know. Sure, sure. Um, okay, here's a movie I started watching this morning because I think like I never, I didn't see it in a theater, although I kept hearing great things about it. Um, and I just don't think I, I, I mean, maybe I've seen it. Watching it again today, I was like, I sort of remember a little of this, but not really. So let me give you the pull quotes, and you see if you can figure out what they were talking about. Because I these pull quotes don't exactly feel like the movie to me. Well, Camby says one of the year's ten best. Okay, Gene Shalit said a hundred percent entertainment. Pauline Kael said an ingeniously contrived spree. Hmm. Uh, William Wolfe in Q Magazine says enjoyable divertissement, the ideal escapist romp. And Stanley Kaufman in the New Republic said a speedy, sparkling spoof. Okay, hmm. so it's a 1976 release because it's already on 10 best lists, right? In the early part of 77. Good, good. Pauline good, Kale yeah. liked it. Um, hmm. What studio released it? Uh, Universal, directed by hmm. Herb Ross. Herb Ross, 76. Wow. Maybe I've never seen this movie either. Oh, you have, I'm sure. You probably own it. All right, give me go with start, <laughs> start with the you want to start with the supporting cast and yeah, okay, sure. Um uh Joel Grey is in this movie, although I haven't gotten to his part yet if he's in it. I mean, wow. he is in it, but I haven't seen it. Is this um, streaming somewhere right now? It is not. I had to hmm. <laughs> I had to find it on OKRU. Joel Gray. Okay, who else? Samantha Egger is in it. Whew. I don't think I've seen this film. Oh, come on. Okay. I, I bet you have. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, you and me both, but I'd be surprised knowing you. Um, oh, wait. Is it? It's not. Um, no, it's. it can't be. Uh, the pull quotes, I think, are misleading. Yeah, Maybe not. It, it it can't be that um, last of Sheila, right? That's... No. Hmm. Well, here's here's four more people who are in it. Okay. Who I don't even know who they are. Charles Gray, Georgia Charles, Brown. Charles Gray was a one-time Blofeld, the narrator of uh, Okay, that Rocky makes Horror sense. Picture Show. Okay. Georgia Brown, Regine, and Jeremy Kemp. Okay, so it's a it's a British production. Yes. Jeremy Kemp is. Uh... What I was thinking mm. about watching it today was like, oh, this is written by this guy who then took oh, this concept. Oh, 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 oh! I have seen it just once. Seven percent solution. Seven percent right? solution. Yep. Okay. Finally. Not, not a fan, huh? You know, I only saw it the one time. I guess I thought it was okay. Um, I think. Uh, I remember thinking Robert Duvall's English accent was a little better than uh, mm-hmm. than uh, Michael Caine's American accent in Secondhand Lions, but um, <laughs> yeah, 
and interestingly, they have Duval narrated in that British accent. Yeah, that's right. And and Nicole Williamson. You know, you know what Nicole Williamson's uh, final drubbing out of show business was? No. He was in on Broadway in a play called I think it's called I Hate Hamlet. Mm. Um, where he played the ghost of John Barrymore, I think. I, 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 I'm not entirely sure, but anyway, during during one of the productions one night, he he actually stabbed an actor with what was supposed to be a oh, prop sword or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think he I think he later claimed he was drunk himself, and but we never heard from the guy again. Well, I, when I started watching this movie, I was like, God, is, why, how did this guy ever get roles? He, was, he drives me insane in Excalibur, but I always just blamed Excalibur for that. Like, the right. fact that everyone sounds like they've been post-dubbed and they're all out of their minds, like, just talking in a crazy way. And he's supposed to be, I guess, beyond eccentric as, as Merlin, but I just hate that performance. And, you know, the, the Coke-fueled... Sherlock Holmes that opens this movie is just seems like, wait, I'm watching this Merlin performance all over again. Like this guy's at the top of his lungs every single he's line. Got that, he's got that stage voice, right? Yeah. Kind of like this. Yeah. Like yeah. very right. pronounced. But I, but I have to say I'm really enjoying Alan Arkin as Freud. Right. Um, and, uh, reliable and, actor. And and Duval is 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 fun in, as a Brit. It's a, it's a strange. Yeah. And yeah. Olivier is Moriarty, right? And Olivier is actually giving one of the more enjoyable screen performances he gave, certainly in the seventies. Yeah, I, I mean it makes it, it makes sense in the context of this, of this movie in a way that some of his other performances, unlike. Dude, oh, you're taking this movie into a whole other realm. It doesn't want to be. I know he got an Oscar nomination for Boys from Brazil, but yeah. the last time I tried to watch it, man, oh man, is he heavy-handed. Just, yeah. just you know, relishing every moment to mm-hmm. ring pathos and, you know, uh, just just hard to watch. Yeah. Much, much, uh, much more enjoyable in Marathon Man, I think. But And Marathon Man came before... Uh, yeah, that's like a summer '76, I think. Right, and so he's, I think he, I think Boys from Brazil is him thinking, well, they liked me in Marathon Man, so I'm gonna double down with the nonsense, with the Nazi nonsense. Right. right. <laughs> um, uh, my favorite of the uh, adaptations of this book was playing. Uh, according to this, it was. Now I thought this movie was. There's another movie where it says, today is the day where it starts at flagship theaters everywhere. And maybe this is another, this this seems to me like another 76 movie that is uh, making yeah, wider inroads. Coming and, out. Yeah. Oh, um, I hope it's not Island of Dr. Moreau. No, although the Michael Caine, I mean, I'm sorry, the Michael York Island Dr. Moreau is, I think, the second best after sure. the, yeah. Sure, but that's, Which there's, a big, there's, a, there's a huge gap between... <laughs> but there's another Lost huge Souls. gap to me between that oh, one yeah. and, and the Brando, Brando one, yeah. yeah. But at least the Brando one is really out of its mind, at least yeah. for the first half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, your favorite adaptation of the novel. Yeah. And if you tell me the author, I'm going to get it. Is that... 
Mm, sure. I mean, I don't know. Who cares? I mean, you know, yeah. I'm going to keep you. Why are we dragging this out? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Based on the book by Mary Rogers with a screenplay by Mary Rogers. So maybe oh, that's Mary why Rogers. I like it. Oh, it's not The Rescuers. No. No. Mary uh, Rogers. Mary it's a decided oh, Friday. Yes, Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday. Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna disagree with you. I'm I know you say, like the Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, yeah, and it's and Jodie Foster's fine, and Barbara Harris is fine too. It's, it's just, it's too, it's too seventies Disney and too, too flat. And but Jamie, but I Lee think Curtis, that's it. To me, that's it. It's like that's the. That's the total 70s Disney package, that movie. It's such a fucking, you know, it's got all that rear screen yeah. stuff. They're, yeah. they're, 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 uh, they're on water skis. <laughs> it's like, yeah. You know, it's I, I, I suppose. I just, I, re- I just was, um, I just tried watching it again. I don't know, about a year, a little more yeah. than a year and a half ago. I watched all three of them. Right. And yeah, and the only one I made it all the way through was the remake. And, and really it's, you know, it's, it's fine. It's a very slickly directed film like a lot of movies from 2003 or 2004 whenever it came out but jamie lee curtis is great so great that she transcends not only the whole movie but all the other versions too Mm -hmm. so so that's my that's my two cents i like i like candle shoe more than i like the jodie foster freaky friday Hmm. okay all right so there you go fair enough for her two or three disney films so uh now this is jaws was back it's interesting that they brought jaws back in january hmm. it was probably around for most of 77 i mean you could probably at least in chicago for a three years after it came out. i did not see jaws until december of 77 and it was in my neighborhood theater so that was two and a half years after it came out and i think they re-released it at that point at least in Chicago, in anticipation of Close Encounters, which was just about to come out, and to uh, yeah you know, f- to fill in the blockbuster gap between J- Star Wars and Close Encounters, I guess. Amazingly, I got my dad to take me to see it when it first. Yeah, came you out. saw it in '75, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, but you're yeah. what three years older than me? At least. <laughs> I don't know how old. I'm. Maybe I'm like five years old, four years old. Well, what you were you were born? Sixty-six. Three years older than me. Oh, okay. 69. But what's interesting to me is that this ad from 1977, as you say, three or year, two years after Jaws came out, it, at the bottom it's got, in, 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 uh, in a parenthesis, for your fullest enjoyment, be sure to see Jaws from the beginning. Oh, that is, I guess, I don't know. They, they were still having that problem, I guess, of people walking in and... The the, yeah. the the thing that you think that Psycho cured for all time that after yeah. Psycho people only showed right. up which isn't which isn't true I mean right um, here's a movie I've never seen and I probably should have and I don't know how I didn't because I'm sure my parents went and saw it in a the theater uh, but they probably knew not to take me uh, Bound for Glory right that was another late seventy six film that was. Up for a bunch of Oscar nominations, which is why it would have been still playing, I guess. Uh, although, I guess the Oscar nominations probably hadn't been announced yet, right? January of 77. Did did, yeah, they're not in this ad. Did it get yeah. any Oscar noms? Oh, yeah. It's, it was up for Best Picture. It was? Yeah. we Best Picture of 76 was Rocky, and the other four films were uh, Taxi Driver, 
Bound for Glory Network and I can't remember what the fifth one was. Hmm. Well, but, uh, having not seen it, I still feel like that's the odd film out of that list. Yeah, I would say it's probably the most neglected uh, today of the five films, but it's it's really good. I mean, oh, it is. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's it's that it's that Hal Ashby run of films that everyone talks about. So it's the landlord through being there. First film released in 1970. The last one released at the tail end of 79. So, and he didn't make a bummer in the bunch. So it was, you know, The Landlord, Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, Coming Home, and then Being There. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, I never hear Bound for Glory talked about in any context. And I don't even hear talked about it. I, when I saw that, the Hal Ashby documentary that we showed at the festival, I don't remember anything about Bound for Glory. I, I know there's stuff in there about Bound for Glory. I, I think maybe a lot of it has to do with um, the fact that, you know, David Carradine was a huge star in 76. And by the end of the 70s, I think he was already appearing in drive-in movies and hmm. You know, um, coming off of Kung Fu and, right. you know, and doing that. And I think, you know, maybe that's why it doesn't get revived a lot today. But it's, it, it is a gorgeous movie. That was the other, pretty sure Haskell Wexler won, won the Oscar for that film. And it's just a really, it's a really good looking film. It's a, it's a rare biopic that I really enjoy. But all movies were better in the 70s, I think. All even right. bio, even biopics. I'm gonna to have to request it next time we. Uh, you're asking me for any programming picks for that. Yeah, I wonder if there's a good print of it still out there. But uh, the Streisand uh, "Star Is Born" was playing at the Ziegfeld and the Baronet. Right, and that was a Christmas big Christmas '76 film. Also, which played well into '77. Uh, the Last Tycoon was in theaters. Never seen Ooh, it. That's a stinker. What a disappointing movie. Directed by Elia Kazan. Screenplay, screenplay. by Harold Pinter. Starring she, De Niro. An, an incredible cast. It's the only yeah. movie, I think, with De Niro and Nicholson have a scene together. Robert Mitchum, Tony Curtis, Jean Moreau. Um, yeah, just a huge, huge, huge cast, and it's it's a bore. Uh, I've been told by people I trust that the the novel, which was unfinished when he died, hmm. by F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, is very good, very entertaining. Well, these guys, um, they they do two. They have Frank Rich listed twice, like Frank Rich saying one of the year's ten best, and then Frank Rich saying last tycoon is the best. It's like two separate pull quotes on wow. this. This thing. But then Vincent can be saying more than any other screen adaptation of Fitzgerald's work, The Last Tycoon preserves original feeling and intelligence. And then somebody from the Wall Street Journal says a film of rare intelligence and sensitivity. Yeah. Capital I on intelligence and S on sensitivity, I guess. That was, you know, that was your classic, you know, New York Lincoln Center or Uptown movie, I suppose, right? Right. I bet that wasn't playing too many theaters in Brooklyn. Uh, it was only at the Cinema One. There, that's what was at Cinema oh, okay. One that week. Right. Um, 
so Carrie was in town and care to take a guess at what they were offering as a second feature with Carrie in January of 77 was it Audrey Rose no that would have been cool that in Chicago that was a wide that was a big uh, in late 77 after Audrey Rose had its Mm -hmm. own run sure those two were released as a pair and played played for a while I remember theaters playing that but uh, okay, can you Carrie... imagine sitting through Audrey Rose after watching Carrie in a movie theater? No, but maybe you get lucky and see Audrey Rose first, and then you get you get to leave on a on a jolt. Yeah, instead of. Uh, but yeah, you know I, that's the way I'd want to watch them. Yeah. Um, okay, double feature with uh, with Carrie. Um, horror, another horror film. Yes, uh, United f- Artists horror movie. Um, was it Squirm? No, that was an AIP film. Um, a UA horror film. I can't imagine what that was. Burnt Offerings. Oh, right. Right, which was already... That's like a, that's like a 74 or 75. Really. Oh, no, maybe it was wow. 76. Hmm. Yeah, that's not too good. No. Dan Curtis. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge Dan Curtis guy. No. Marathon Man was in its sixth week. Um, oh, okay. So that was a late 76 film then. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you, so you he, could see Marathon Man, Carrie, Bound for Glory, Silver Streak. I mean, come on. Jaws. Jaws. I mean, what is, you know, what, yeah. are, we, what are we even doing? I don't even know. <laughs> uh Okay, here's here's a movie that's got a, a a full third page of an ad, all of it pull quotes. Uh, but it's interesting to me because some of them, I don't see this that much ever, uh, are not actual critics. So it starts oh. with a pull quote, uh, a profound, deeply moving, incredibly beautiful movie, and that's by Sidney Lumet. That quote comes from Sidney Lumet. Huh. And then further on down the line... We get Brilliant, Unforgettable from Susan Sontag. You know, and, I think I saw this ad very recently, and I've already forgotten what the movie is. And then get this. Fascinating, unusual, visually imaginative, exciting, thrilling. It's like he just threw every adjective he could come up with. <laughs> and that's from Lee Strasberg. Huh. So is it like an indie Indie production, like a it's a it's a it's a well it's a it's a I want to say it's a foreign film it's I want to say it's a French film it's Providence. Oh yeah, Providence. Yeah, I've actually seen it. This is not the ad I was thinking of, but Hmm. um, yeah, I saw I got to see a fairly faded print fifteen years ago or so, but it's an interesting film. I you know I'm I'm hot and cold on Alan Renee. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a that's a very it came up re, it came up recently oh the father the Anthony Hopkins oh yeah movie that came out mm-hmm. earlier this year late last year uh, it, it, it was was compared to Providence Law. you have you know actors playing multiple roles and uh, in in Providence I don't remember who the old man is that I think it's John Gielgud. Hmm. Uh, and you know, I don't remember if he's got 
you know, Alzheimer's or dementia or anything. I don't, I don't think that's the, I think he's a writer and there's things going on in his head. And right. So you've got, you know, Dirk Bogard and David Warner and I think Ellen Burstyn in there too. And yes, she is. Yeah. That's why I was like unsure whether it was actually like a French produced film. I'll I'll bet you anything Like they went to her and she went to her acting teacher, Lee Strasberg and said, Hey Lee, would you come take a look at this? And yeah. Put your name right. on it. I wonder who got Sidney Lumet to give them a quote. Uh, isn't she in a Lumet film? No, maybe, oh, maybe. maybe not. I can't think of any. Uh, well, okay. So uh, I've got to end this in a moment because there's somebody coming over to do something right. else with me. But uh, I'll tell you what else was playing. Network. Okay. Not one of my favorites, but... Oh, really? I didn't no. know that about you. No, I just, it, I, I just think there's a lot of screaming in it and a lot yeah. of... You know, I think like for wor- for the film for the worst, um, it's it's William Holden's character who, who hangs over the film and his speechy, you know, and his yeah. anger and his old man yeah. grumpiness and yeah. I think Shaevsky identifies more with him and clearly Faye Dunaway <laughs> and Peter Finch are more interesting characters and sure you know but right he's a loony and she we're supposed to think she's just a cold bitch and you know by the way. So, I watched another Lumet movie this morning that I had never seen or never even really heard of. And I was like, oh, and it's it's a it's a weird one. Uh, Child's Play. Yeah, it is a weird one. It's yeah, it's, it's you know, one of those odd ones. It's like James Mason and and Robert Preston, Robert Preston and fighting for fighting for the 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 adoration of boys at a prep school. Right. Isn't that it? And they're like teachers. Yeah. And yeah. And then Bo Bridges is like a young, the young teacher who comes aboard, right? Like, yeah, kind of caught in between the two of them. Y- yeah, um, yes, and it's got kind of like a twist ending, I guess. But it's, I don't know. Yeah, there's some, there's a bunch of weird '70s Lumet films that fall in between these huge movies, like uh, Love and Molly and mm-hmm. uh, right. Child's Play, and you know, there's, there's, there's a couple more in there. The guy was busy. I mean, he was. Sometimes cranking out two, three films a year. Yeah. Uh, the Day That Shook the World. Never saw it. Is that a documentary? I don't know. No. Christopher <laughs> Plummer and Maximilian Schell are in it. Never heard of it. Uh, directed by Vel- Velzko Bulajik. Huh. Guess so it's some kind Polish. of Eastern European yeah. production? I guess so. Uh, Pink Panther Strikes Again, a delightful film, was held over for a second Smash Week at theaters around the. Well, that's my favorite of the sequels, not not counting a Shot in the Dark, which is I think is great. But Shot in the Dark, I also like a lot, but it's got you know it's, it's different. That's it's got that section in it where it's just sort of like, um, it's sort of not even a comedy. It's got like just sort of like right. the killings and the. Right. There are weird, long, straight, not in Strikes Again, but in like the first, if I remember right, the first 20 minutes of Revenge of the Pink Panther is totally straight with mm-hmm. Robert Weber and the gay yeah. plot. And then as soon as yeah. they introduce Clouseau, it's like a big cartoon. Right. Then he's dressed up in, a, in an inflatable gangster suit. or whatever. Yeah. But it's like a long time. Like there's a long prelude to the comedy in that movie, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, Female Trouble and Pink Flamingos were a double feature at Cinema Village. That's a lot of fun. 
Yeah. Uh, Voyage of the Damned was playing. Yeah, that's not a bad... Uh, it's kind of a... It's kind of a... Uh, the, 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 the Oscar bait... Uh, important historical event movie meets the disaster movie formula. Lots of stars and um, it's it's pretty good. It's you know it's lots of really good acting in it. Uh, King Kong was in its seventh week. Right, that was a big Christmas '76 release. Uh, all right, let's 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 have this little. Uh, I'll just throw a question out there. Okay. What do you th- What do you prefer, this King Kong or the Peter Jackson? Oh, I, I'll take the '76 one. I mean, me too. I, I watched it again recently, <laughs> and it's like, it's you know, it's not. It's you know, the Rick Baker in the ape suit, and you know, I, and I like a good gorilla suit, but you know, the, the effects aren't aren't so great, but. The performances are so much better. And, you know, King, Peter Jackson's King Kong is like listening to, uh, you know, the most boring film film nerd, you know, take three hours to describe his his, you know, favorite 100 minute fantasy film from 1933. Yeah. Um, How is it? Is it a full hour in the Peter Jackson movie before they even approach yeah. Skull Island? I think so. I think so. I mean, just, that's crazy. You know, you, For what? A, For no close, reason. It's close to 40 minutes before you, 45 minutes, 40 or 45 minutes before you see the ape in the 33 version. But I mean, it's, a yeah, very, but, it's a very fleet movie. I mean, it. Yeah, yeah but you're long. getting other stuff. You're getting oh, those yeah. other dinosaurs and uh, yeah. all kinds of stuff. I'm saying we, we spend it's like right. Tales yeah. of Manhattan for the first 45 minutes. Right, that's what you wanted to make a movie about the Depression for some reason. I don't know. Just, you know. Uh, that was that was his bid for bid for greatness on that one. Yeah, that is a that is a instantly forgettable film. I'll take King Kong Lives from 1986, the De Laurentiis sequel with Linda Hamilton, Peter Jackson, King Kong. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just just by virtue of being an hour and twenty minutes shorter. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Rocky was still all over the place. And Rocky just, Rocky had, you know, built and built. It was really, you know, I think it opened very quietly. And then just the buzz and the build. And then this is January, right? So by February, the Oscar nominations come out and people are more curious. And then it wins. That movie played well, well into the end of 76. You could find that in theaters. And I'm sure it got released. Right, 77. And I'm sure it got re-released in 78. And, you know, you could find it. Yeah, was what what year was Rocky Two? Rocky Two came out June of seventy nine. So maybe Rocky might have been playing right up through, right up almost. Pretty, until I'm sure. Rocky I'm sure. Two. I'm sure there were some theaters that were playing it because they knew that was coming out. Right. Um, he had Paradise Alley and Fist in between the two Rocky first two Rockies, uh, and they were both flops. So I'm sure that they were you know trying to get as much mileage out of Rocky as possible. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. This was good. This is going to be a fun, good. fun listen for people. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks for and having we'll be me. Back. We'll be back soon. Sometime in the next couple of weeks, we'll figure one out. And uh, Yeah, we'll do, we'll, we'll do one. Yeah, come up with some movie ideas. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll send you a list. All right. Okay, thanks, Ben.
Bye, Jim. Bye, Jim.